If you are warm with your kids and if you have structure, the rest will sort itself out. It's, it's what you do. Right? You can say all sorts of stuff. If that doesn't line up with how you're actually functioning in your relationships and how you're actually conducting yourself in life, first of all, kids will just call you a big fat hypocrite, you know, which they'll do that anyway. But, but also it's really, it comes down to what you choose in your behavior, what kids will most pay attention to. I would just say to parents, you know, if you can be warm, if you can have rules and consistently reinforce them and be predictable in your reaction to things, things will be all right. That's Lisa Damore, this week on The Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Greetings, Earthlings. My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host, and this is the podcast where I go deep with people that inspire me personally and leading experts across a wide spectrum of disciplines that span everything from diet and nutrition to fitness, spirituality, athletics, entertainment, and everything in between. Today's expedition takes us into the mysterious, confusing, and uh, often opaque world of parenting with a specific focus on one of the world's most exotic, mystifying, perplexing, uh, baffling, what else, Uh, unfathomable creatures on planet Earth, the teenage girl. What's your experience with teenage girls? <laughs> Not that much. I mean, I have a niece, but she's now, I think she's 19, so she's uh, she's almost out of it. Well, I got to say, this is of particular acute interest to me personally as the parent of one such peculiar being and uh, another one who is on the precipice. And as somebody who's helped raise two boys who are now 23 and 24, I really thought that I had much of this parenting thing figured out, but... Nothing could prepare me for the uh, disorienting experience of navigating the unpredictable vicissitudes of a 15-year-old female. Uh, It's a journey that has, at times, uh, brought me to my knees, I must admit, but which has also been one of my greatest joys and teachers. In any event, our cipher for this exploration is the great Lisa Damore. Uh, a teen whisperer par excellence. Lisa is a Yale-educated psychotherapist with a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Michigan who really specializes in education and child development. She is best known for her two New York Times bestselling books, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and her newest release, Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Uh, the parent of two teenage girls herself. Lisa writes the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times, serves as a regular contributor to CBS News, maintains a private psychotherapy practice, consults and speaks internationally, is a senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University, and serves as the executive director of Laurel School's Center for Research on Girls. And this is all a long way of saying that When it comes to adolescent and teenage girls, and boys, I should add, she really knows her stuff. So if, like me, you are a parent of young humans trying to make the right moves or just want to better understand how young people think and why they behave as they do, then this episode is Appointment Listening. 
Hey, everybody. Like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We did it. Thank you. I love my sponsors. Thanks, DK. They make the show possible, right? And I appreciate everybody's support. And I should add that given that most of you are listening to this on the run and are likely to forget all the special discount codes and URLs, uh, you can find all of our sponsors and codes in alphabetical order on my website. Just go to ritual.com, click on resources tab on the top menu, and then the sponsors submenu tab, and it's all right there. Okay, Lisa Demore. Again, as a parent, and maybe you can relate to this, uh, there have been <laughs> countless, countless occasions where something happens and I'm just at a loss as to what the right, compassionate, loving, understanding, appropriate response is. And I am so far from perfect at this, despite having been a parent and a stepfather for basically two decades. And Lisa's books have really been instrumental for me. Uh, this is a meeting I've been hotly awaiting for some time, and I got to say, she really nails it. In specific terms, we focus on the particular emotional 
overload and social pressures that young people face, sex, drugs, popularity, social media, uh, how to better understand the nature of these dynamics and how to effectively parent through them. We talk about what accounts for the crazy recent rise in anxiety and stress in young girls and how to help ameliorate it, uh, the common mistakes that many parents, myself included, often make. Uh, we talk about the importance of open communication and how to foster it. Basically, just strategies for navigating the healthy developmental transitions that specifically girls, but also boys, undergo as they mature into grownups so that we, as parents, can optimally guide this next generation towards everything from self-efficacy, uh, self-esteem, and essentially just becoming competent, healthy uh, humans. Lisa gets girls. Uh, they don't call her the teen whisperer for nothing, you guys. So without further ado, I give you Lisa Damore. All right, Lisa, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. It's Thanks for doing here. this. Uh, really excited to talk to you. Um, I think of you as part of this trifecta that includes KJ, Del Antonia, Jess Leahy, mm -hmm. and yourself as three women who are doing really important work around parenting. And you're really in the sweet spot of what currently interests me the most as a, <laughs> as a <laughs> parent of an adolescent girl, 15-year-old daughter, and an 11-year-old daughter. Um, and I'm going to have to resist the urge to try to make this all about me and my, you know, parenting issues out of respect for my daughter and her privacy. Uh, but I may lapse into that uh, at times. But really excited to talk to you um, about this very uh, important and interesting and dramatic period in young girls' lives. Uh, that I'm currently in the midst of experiencing at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the best way to maybe kick into it, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how we as a culture and maybe as parents think about this period of adolescence in girls' lives. Um, I feel like, and I know you've addressed this in your book, uh, that we've sort of pathologized this, you know, oh, be careful, you know, when your daughter turns 13 or 14 or 15, everything changes and it's, you know, she's, she's going to become a quote unquote monster and, you know, just get ready. Okay. I am in complete agreement. <laughs> yeah. um, so three years ago, I published a book called Untangled, mm -hmm. Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. And the first line of that book is, we need a new way to talk about teenage girls because the way we do it now isn't fair to girls or helpful to their parents. And I go on to describe exactly what you just mm. described. You know, that people say like, oh, you know, because I, I have two daughters. And people see me with them and they say, oh, I'm so glad I have boys, right? Or when people will learn what I do professionally, you know, that I, I take care of teenagers for, you know, a living and teenage girls in particular, they'll say like, oh, there should be medals for that. They're the worst, you know? So there uh -huh. is all of this sort of bad press around adolescent girls. Um, I think teenagers in general, I think girls and boys each get their own bad rap. You know, I think it's specific to gender. And it is so unhelpful and so unnecessary. And I do feel like my main aim in my professional work is to try to help people understand the normal vicissitudes of adolescence. And um, in Untangled, my previous commercial book, 
I do walk through all of these expectable transitions. And I end every chapter with a section called When to Worry, because so much of normal development is challenging that I wanted parents to know that there actually is a line you can cross, but, you know, most of what you see is difficult but normal. And um, with response to that book, the the thing that so many people have said to me that has meant the world to me is they say, it feels like you're in our house. It feels like you've had a bug Uh on us. Which I hear them as saying, we thought we were the only ones. It's such a breath of fresh air to hear this is normal development and that this is a pattern that people are living with. What is it that's specific to girls that makes it different from raising boys at this age? So I think 80% of what I say about girls probably also applies to boys. Uh And I hear that repeatedly from readers of both books. They'll say, you know, I bought it for my daughter and 80% applied to it, my son. And certainly my work on the structure of adolescence, the transitions I laid out in Untangled, boys go through the same exact transitions. There are unique pressures facing girls, and that's why I do home in on them in my um, book-length work. I think that there are cultural expectations that girls are held to that boys don't have to worry about quite so much. I know boys worry about their appearance. I don't think they do it at nearly the level that girls are asked by the culture to worry about it. Um, girls more than boys, the research tells us, you know, they worry about what adults think. You know, they're very concerned about disappointing adults. This adds a whole other layer of pressure in their lives at school and at home. Um, in Under Pressure, my new book, chapter four is about girls among boys. And the sexual dynamics between girls and boys are not something adults want to look at all that closely. And they're not that great. And And I think there's a lot of work that we need to be doing on behalf of kids, but I think Mm. for both boys actually and girls, but I also think first we have to, um, you know. Well, how are we, I mean, yeah, you've broken the book up into kind of sections like girls at home, girls at school, girls with boys, girls in the culture. Um, What is it, you know, since you raised that, this issue now, girls with boys, maybe we can just talk about that right now. I mean, what is it that we're misunderstanding as parents about this or maybe afraid to talk about? So I think there's a few pieces. Um, I talk about this in this chapter, you know, the the amount of harassment girls are dealing with by middle school is pretty stunning. And it's casual and it's just part of the school day for a lot of girls. Uh, It's supported by research documenting this kind of harassment. But it's, you know, guys calling them sluts and whores. And then if they push back, the guys will be like, oh, I was just kidding. You know, you're making Mm -hmm. a big deal of it. Um, There was an extraordinary study done by the American Association of University Women um, called hostile hallways. And it documented by eighth grade, half of girls had dealt with, you know, boys drawing drawing penises on their notebooks, boys threatening spread rumors about them, boys talking about their boobs to them, boys, you know, saying all of this stuff is sort of, um, I think for a lot of girls just seen as part of what you have to deal with in the course of a school day. What I worry, and this is the piece where I feel like there's a lot of work to be done. I'm not sure I'm the one who's going to do this work, but I think the work needs to be done. What I worry is that if you're a sixth grade boy, the shortest route to social power may be acting like a jerk, Mm -hmm. either through homophobic behavior or basically chauvinistic behavior. And, you know, sixth grade boys and sixth grade girls, you know, they are really just figuring it out as they go. They are not who they're going to be. But I do worry that it would be easy enough for a sixth grade boy to strike upon 
realizing that if he calls that kid a fag or if he calls that girl a slut, all of this power flows his way. And the power is because now kids are scared of him. Hmm. And once you're a sixth or a seventh grader that people are scared of, people actually want to be close to you because they don't want to be a potential target. So I worry that there is this juncture much earlier in development than we're usually looking at that can set guys on a path that they should not be on, they don't want to be on. I think I'd like to think they don't want to be on. And that also means that girls are putting up with all sorts of nonsense that should not be part of their day. And that's the part where I feel like adults have, when we're talking about the Me Too movement, where I think we're talking about it way later than is relevant to my work. Right. right? That doesn't start to impact culture until a generation later. It's yeah. interesting because I was that was my sort of thinking while you were talking was how has this, if it has at all, changed in the wake of the Weinstein scandal and the Me Too movement and the conversations that we're having around toxic masculinity. And in my experience, you know, at a very, very much at arm's length is that I'm seeing boys doing that stuff and it doesn't seem to be changing. It's totally divorced from what's happening yeah. at the adult level. There was an interesting report last week in, um, I think it was in Bethesda, there was a boy who was sort of the ringleader at a high school, and then several other boys who had created a ranking system for girls' looks. Uh-huh. I went to I went to school in Bethesda. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know of these things. Yeah. Um, and this came out, and the school did not, as far as the girls involved were concerned, discipline him adequately. Mm-hmm. And I think forty girls showed up in the principal's office and just, you know were absolutely um, incensed about it. That's new. That is new. That So that, to answer your question, yeah. I think that that piece feels so to me like- the Behavior it, might not have changed, but the reaction and the response to yep. that behavior is changing. And that was exciting to see. And and they forced the hand of the administration. It became a much bigger deal. There was much more sort of a you know reckoning around what had occurred. So I do feel like, okay, that's great. We're getting the trickle down into high school in this one story. I think sixth grade is ground zero and I think that's the place where grownups are pretty comfortable um, going with the idea that we we don't need to think about it so young. And if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about it. You know, a lot of kids this age are looking at porn. Yeah. You know, and and Dan Savage, you know, who is I love just, Dan I Savage. love Dan Savage. You know, what he says, he says porn hates women. You know, and and yeah. I think that certainly what kids are accessing, you know, they're not looking at erotica, you know, they're not mm-hmm. looking at soft focus, you know, romantic stuff. Um, I think Dan's right. You know, I think it's, and that is thoroughly supported in the research literature, you know, the the way academic psychologists say it is, you know, it coalesces around themes of degradation and violence. Um, this is sex ed for a lot of kids. Yeah, it's really supplanted yeah. how we used to teach young people about these things. Yeah. And it's become their roadmap and their guidebook for what sexual interaction should look like. Yeah. And if we want to talk about pathology, I mean, that's a massive pathology. It is. And it does feel like to me one of those things where the grown-ups are pretty glad to be like, la, 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 you know, uh, and yeah. just to to not confront what it means that 11 and 12-year-olds who are, of course, curious about sex, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, that's not the problem. It's that when they're curious about sex, they're going to Pornhub.com and seeing stuff there that blows adults out of the water to mm-hmm. look at. And are girls doing the same? So it's interesting. When we look at the research, we see, a, um, I think it's something like by the end of high school, 70% of girls have seen porn. 
What becomes interesting as you drill down, and I don't have the numbers exactly, is whether they're initiating the looking at the porn or whether, as often happens, they're riding the bus and some kid pulls it up on their phone and goes, hey, look at this, you know, and sort of sticks it in their face. So I think they're seeing it. Um, Girls are curious about sex, too, so I'm sure some of them are seeing it and and, and pursuing it. And I I have a 15-year-old daughter, and I, like you, am cautious about Mm -hmm. talking about her. But this I can share because it's what I said to her. Um, when she was in seventh grade, she started with the, you know, I'd like a phone, I'd like a phone. And um, we went on a walk around the block. And I said, you know, here's my number one concern. Not that you're going to be unkind, not that you're going to use this for, you know, to distract yourself or get in the way of your sleep. My number one concern is this is a likely vehicle by which you will ultimately be exposed to pornography. And I want to say a few words to you before that happens. And so um, what did you say? So what I said is, I think it's going to really freak you out. I think it's going to really freak you out. And I want you to bear in mind that the sex that you see in a commercial environment, people are paid for sex. You know, they're being paid to um, to have sex on camera. I said to her, I believe it's fundamentally exploitive. I That is not loving romantic sex. Um, I want to reassure you what you're seeing on porn that is not really have a lot in common with the love life I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to her, I think a lot of it's going to strike you as violent and weird. And that's actually not what sex needs to be about. It's not what it's about for me. And when the day comes that you see porn, I didn't say if. When the day comes that you see porn one way or another, I'm here to answer any questions you've got because mm-hmm. you're going to have a lot of questions. Yeah. And what happens when that young girl is in the midst of her first or an early sexual encounter with a boy who has been looking at porn for a long time and is taking all of his cues from basically what he's seen in those videos. Well, here's what the data say. The data say that porn scripts are in fact shaping sexual scripts. They have to be. They are. And a lot of it, it's interesting, has been the change in the rates of anal sex. You know, that that has now... Um, you know, we've been tracking this over time and, and you know, the rates have really increased. And, you know, I, I, I approach this as interesting, both sort of non-judgmentally as a psychologist. I sort of feel like, you know what, people's sexual lives, like I'm not going to legislate mm-hmm. adult sexual lives. Um, when we look at the data, a lot of women don't enjoy anal sex, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so um, yet a lot of guys, because of the porn scripts that are so prominent, are under the impression that this is a sort of a standard Right. Part of the menu. Right. You know. What are we going to do about that? Uh, I think they're going to need to um, take their fingers out of their ears and, <laughs> and take their hands off their eyes yeah. and, and have more, um, more honest conversations with their kids. It's interesting because, again, I, I'm, I'm really very kind of relaxed and liberal about a lot of stuff. But I, I do think it's interesting that we have no regulation mm-hmm. on this. Um, it's also funny to me. I've been... Vaping's bad. Like, I'm, I'm no yeah. fan of vaping. Um, and I know grownups are really on the ceiling about vaping. I am less on the ceiling about vaping than I think a lot of grownups are. And, and I can elaborate. Back. I will come back to that. Yeah. But it was interesting because I was, I in my community, I'm aware of, like, this panel on vaping and this panel on, you know, and I'm like, we should have this much on porn. Like, we should yeah. have, you know, there should be this much. Well, I think we're yeah. afraid. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's too freaky to talk about. It's something that, you know, we don't feel comfortable talking about out in the open. And that just foments the pathology of it. 
I think that's right. Yeah. And so we're like, all right, kids, you guys go over there and deal with that. We're just going to look the other way. And But the vaping yeah. thing is tricky because it can be so clandestine. It's so easy to hide it. It is. And it's yeah. so difficult to detect it. Mm-hmm. And it's so enticing for people at that age. It's pretty sexy, right? I mean, it, it's really a, a pretty good way to do something your parents really don't want you to do, right? right? Which is a lot of what getting to be a yeah. teenager is about. Um, okay, so vaping's not good. And okay. I, I want to be clear that I'm not a, not a fan of vaping. Um, it. My number one concern is obviously the kids are getting addicted to nicotine. So now they're getting yeah. themselves caught on a substance that they, you know, where this is not an addiction that goes away easily. There, the jury is out on questions of, you know, the, the long impact mm-hmm. of microparticles or, you know, vaporized formaldehyde. But, you know, what I say to kids and what I've written is like, why risk it, right? Like, why risk it? Um, the reason I am <clears throat> a little more, I, I'm not, I'm not as on the ceiling about vaping, I think, as other adults is I'm, I am mindful of how it is received by teenagers when adults seem to be equally um, terrified of everything. So when I talk with teenagers- It's too high in the pecking order. It's, too, it's a little high. Mm-hmm. So, so when I talk with teenagers, and I spend a lot of time talking with teenagers about you know the various hazards out there, I will say to them, you know, and I'll use my hand, I'll say like, okay, so- Heroin's up here, you know, and I will extend my arm above my head to its fullest length, right? And cocaine is right there. And, you know, any other drug that you, someone's given you, you have no idea what it is. Like, it's up there. And marijuana is up here. And I'll tell you, you know, it's it's lower than these in terms of, and I'm thinking surely in terms of biological risk hazards, yeah. right? Like, I, I say to them, the law is super complicated and immaterial. You're not going to get caught. It's really about the the, the physical hazards. And then I'll say, and cigarette smoking, you know, is here, you know, sort of at a mid-range. Vaping, everything we know biologically, is below cigarette smoking in terms of its real risks, Uh right? And, you know, obviously, kids today are not smoking a ton of cigarettes, so we don't have reasons to be um, holding lots of panels about that. But then I say to them, you you don't want to be messing with any of this stuff, right? All of these are psychoactive. All of these are biological. All of these will have a negative impact on your body. None of these, you know, I'll say to them, like— Get crazy haircuts, like wear, you know, tacky nails, like do something, don't do something that has a potential for lasting consequences, these all do. Mm. And what I find, that seems to sit right with teenagers. But when we talk about vaping with the same energy and anxiety that we talk about the heroin epidemic, I think then to teenagers, they feel like, teenagers know it's not equally dangerous. And then I think we become pretty dismissible in those moments. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a difference between opioids and nicotine vaping Mm -hmm. uh, or marijuana for that matter. But, you know, here in California, there's such a mainstreaming of marijuana. Like it's almost perceived as like part of your wellness equation now with CBD and all these sorts of things. And we've had a real huge cultural shift in how we perceive that, Mm -hmm. that alarms me to some extent as somebody who's a long time in recovery, first mm. of all, uh, and, you know, carries that genetic, you know, predisposition that's passed down. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I think the way young people perceive it is different than when I was, you know, of that age where it's like, it's just no big deal. And, you know, their brains are still developing and, you know, certainly, you know, you could speak to that issue more eloquently than I could, but to kind of look at it like it's, like it's nothing isn't the solution either. No, no. And actually, so, you know, the issue for me with marijuana is the neurological impact, right? And, and what we know is that at least till age 24, 25, there's a real neurological impact of marijuana because of the developing brain. And there's some extraordinary research that came out of Dunedin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I think in Australia, where they um, these researchers started measuring an entire cohort, everybody born in a single year. And they did this about 40 years ago. And they just kept measuring this group over and over and over again every year. And they have the data on the kids who started using pot really heavily in high school. And they were taking IQ data all the time. And what they found was that kids who were using a lot, so not like the occasional every once in a while Uh experiment, but kids who were using a lot, my recollection is they lost about 10 IQ points. And even when they stopped using, the IQ points did not return. They didn't bounce back. Yeah, it was just done. And so when I talk with teenagers about marijuana, I say, like, here are the data. This will cost you... um, your some of your intelligence. It also in the day to day, and and kids have observed this in their peers. It makes kids fuzzy whether or not they're high in that moment. Mm-hmm. There is a bit of a hangover that lasts, and um, and so I say to them like, look, you're really talking about changing your trajectory here, right? You really, if you get yourself involved with this, it could have real meaning. Um, so I'm in Ohio. I live in in Ohio mm-hmm. where marijuana is not legal, and yet interestingly, kids feel like it is. Like that's the other thing that's right. striking to me is that. Um, and I sometimes will find myself a really thoughtful 18-year-old and just sort of check. I'll say, like, what about marijuana? Like, like what about the fact that it's illegal? And they'll say, like, well, but it's, like, basically legal. Right. And I'll it's say, not, because everybody's yeah. information diet is not localized. Yeah. So I'm like, but, you know, it's not here. They're like, but it basically is. And I'm like, right. no, but really it's not. <laughs> um, but I, I, I've uh. been interested how even these really thoughtful kids, they, they do, they take, they take it at the national level. Um, so what I say to the kids I take care of in Ohio, I'm like, look, if it is your lifelong dream to smoke pot, like if you feel like you have to do this before you die, the only really safe way to consider doing this is you go to a place where it is legal. You get it through a legal channel and you do it after age 25, right? Like, and and then you could try it. And then I say, you're still impaired. I mean, it's not like you're, you know, ready to go do something that requires any good judgment, but I do try to make the point, like there are real health consequences that have nothing to do with where the law sets the age. I mean, the law doesn't make sense if we're mm-hmm. looking at it from a health perspective. There's a large gap between what's actually going on in this demographic and how, you know, what parents think is going on and how media portrays what's going on. Like, here's an example. I took my daughter to go see that movie, Eighth Grade. Yeah. And I thought, oh, we're going to have this great experience. We're going to have, you know, she's going to, She's going to see her own interior and exterior life reflected on the big screen um, in this honest way. And she she hated the movie. She's like, yeah, I kind of get it, but this is such a dishonest portrayal of what hmm. it's actually like. She felt like it was completely whitewashed. She said, nobody's doing drugs. Nobody's looking at porn. Nobody's vaping, nobody's listening to hip hop, like all of the things Mm. that are part of her daily experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. were completely eradicated Mm. from that depiction. And Mm -hmm. I think there's an honesty in that actress's portrayal of that story. Like, I think there's a lot of truth in that movie, 
But my point is that she didn't see her own res- her own experience reflected mm-hmm. in that movie. She likes to she's seen movies like Kids, you know, <laughs> which is super intense. Pretty, yeah, it's uh, tough to watch. We, we went and saw Mid Nineties. That's like her favorite mm-hmm. movie because she felt like there's an authenticity mm-hmm. and like an unabashed honesty about how kids, you know, think about their lives at that period mm-hmm. of time. And she did see her 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 experience reflected in those movies because they're grittier and darker and mm-hmm. all of that. But I guess the point I'm making is, I think there's there's more complexity and darkness and nuance than we as parents or the culture would like to accept or embrace. And what do, how do you res- think about that or respond to that? In general, I agree. Right. I mean, I think that we we sort of pick and choose what we want to engage with about adolescence experience mm-hmm. and. And um, I think it's easy for us to look away from some things. What's interesting, there's two ways to think about this when we just think about it from a research-based perspective. One is the data are consistently showing this is the best behaved generation of teenagers on record. When we look really? at- Yeah, yeah. They do fewer drugs mm. than their parents did. They, um, by the safety measures we do, you know, things like using contraception, um, wearing seatbelts, wearing helmets, uh, drinking, they actually binge drink less than previous generations have. Yeah, I think have. that's true. Um, so by a great number of safety and risk-taking metrics, this is a very conservative generation. They have much less sex. They have sex later, you know, all of these things. And and one of the um, hypotheses is actually that um, digital technology has taken up a lot of the space. Uh-huh. Right, so kids used to get together and have sex. Now they stay home and sexed, you know. Right. So that's taken that up. And there was one piece I read in the Times a while back where some of the hypothesis about kids doing fewer drugs was around, well, they're, you know, they're hooked on their phones, you know. So, uh-huh. and part of me thought, well, that's you know. That's the primary addiction. Yeah, I'm like, would I trade that? You know, like, I'm yeah. not sure I'm, I'm, I'm not okay with that. Um, so... The first thing I, I think I always want to get out there on the table is like as a group, they're actually good kids, right? And and as a group, they're definitely better behaved than we were generationally. Um, the other thing though that comes into it, and this is I think maybe your surprise, the kids who are in the fast lane, um, everybody knows who they are and what they're doing, right? They're, they're right. very, um, they get a lot of press mm-hmm. in in adolescent social circles, and. We do studies where we look at kids' um, assumptions of who's doing what and how much of it, right? So if we ask kids, how many kids are smoking, they call it weed, right? How many kids mm-hmm. are smoking weed? You know, their their estimates are much, much higher than the reality mm-hmm. because the kids who are smoking weed are talking about it. Everybody right. knows who they are. Same thing with sex. Um, same thing even one of the things I talk about in Under Pressure is the um, the, the hookup scene, yeah. Right. So it turns out the data actually don't support the hype of the hookup scene. That it's what is the hype? So the hype is the college is one big orgy, right? And if you're going to do college right, you're going to be having you know sex with strangers uh-huh. uh, pretty often, right? Um, that's not to say that it doesn't happen, but in terms of again estimates and kids, you know, presumptions of how many kids are doing this versus how many kids are actually doing it, there are these big big gaps. So, in no way to diminish that your daughter's experience. Like these things are around me. You know, these things are in my existence. And that's that's no small thing, right? To be mindful of kids, you know, that kid's smoking weed, that kid's having sex. I mean, like they're they're well aware of these things. Um my favorite way for adults to engage that is to 
think out loud with their kids about what percentage of their overall class are we talking here? Because often it's a much, it's a fairly small percentage of kids Mm -hmm. who are thoroughly in the fast lane. Right. But they're the ones that everyone's watching on Snapchat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're getting the attention. They are. There's some really lovely, I'm not going to remember the name of the group that does this, which bothers me. There is a group, it may be Freedom from Chemical Dependency, and their work with adolescents around drug and alcohol use is actually to show them the base rates in their own school. I think they do surveys. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm getting this right. This may not be accurate. Where they do surveys, and they actually then present to the kids, you know what? Only 20% of the kids in your school have ever tried pot. Uh And for a lot of kids, this is a revelation. And the aim in that group, if that's the right group, is to actually help them appreciate that you're probably in the majority if you're not using. Right. Because kids can feel Mm -hmm. marginal Mm -hmm. when um, so much press is going to the kids who are... What is the reality of, well, first of all, like, what is hookup culture? You know, like, like, like maybe we should define that yeah. and how um, boys and girls uh, are interacting in this way, or girls and girls or boys and boys, um, in a way that might maybe is different from the generation that preceded it. So here are the data. Um, it is true that this generation is more likely than their parents' generation to have intercourse with someone who's a friend, right? That they don't, it's not part of a romantic relationship. So I guess they would call it like friends with casual. benefits or something, kind of casual. Right. Um, that, that That is the one place in the data where we see this generation's patterns maybe being, I don't know what the term is, you know, like more liberal than their parents were. Um, compared to, though, the past generation, they are having less sex. They are having fewer partners. Um, they're mm-hmm. having sex later. So, you know, the you know spring breaker movies would have you believe that like we're in some new age of you know, you know, sexual bacchanal. The data don't support that. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought that. I know. And yeah. so, what's interesting then, and the reason I make a point of talking about it and under pressure, is since that's the story. I have had girls come see me and say, I don't really think I'm ready for college. Like, I don't, I just can't see myself participating in what sounds like the landscape there. And and I feel like I'm doing all of this work of saying, that's actually not the landscape. Like, you can find real relationships, mm-hmm. right? You, you do not have to assume that if you're going to have a love life, it's going to be this, you know, drive-by situation. Um, and... Again, to try to normalize that that um, this is one one corner of what's going on, but it's not the whole story. Right. And what about during the high school years? So um, most of the data I'm aware of are looking at more at college. Same though, um, high schoolers are having sex later and having fewer partners than previous generations. Uh-huh. Um, and and again, it's that they're they're just often not with each other while they're communicating. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had to go. So to someone's house, yeah, right to hang out. Wow. Well, yeah. what I've noticed with with uh, what's interesting is I have two older boys that are twenty four and twenty three now, and they they're very analog. Like they don't, they're really not. I mean, they have Instagram accounts. They barely ever post. Like they live very you know IRL lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but my daughters are very different. And one of the things I've noticed that they do, it's interesting how a technology will come online, and then you see a younger generation adopt it and use it in ways that you would never have imagined or anticipated. So they both use FaceTime 
Um, they FaceTime with their friends, not to like have a short call, but they just leave it on. Yeah, just to be together. They'll be in there. Yeah, like they're yeah. basically with their, even when they're in their bedroom, uh-huh. they'll like for hours yeah. and they're not even talking to each other. They're just sort of in this communal virtual yeah. virtual space with each other while they're doing other things. They do the homework. And people they, are yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah, and I'm like, I would have never imagined yeah. that. And I see that over and over and over again. So yeah, they're they're together, but they're not. They are. Um, and they're together a lot, right? I mean, yeah, like, I mean, there were lot. times eventually we were just cut off, right? Like our mom said, like, get off the phone, right. right? And then you had, you know, 10 to 12 hours at least where you were just separated from your friends just because you had to be. Um, they're together a lot. And there's a beautiful quote from Dana Boyd, who's an academic who studies kids and technology and does it in a really thoughtful way. And, and her quote is, you know, they're not addicted to the technology, they're addicted to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that that really, like, they just want to be together. You know, they want to be together all the time. That's yeah. very kind of reassuring to me, uh-huh, <laughs> you uh-huh, know? Yeah. Like, there's there's actually nothing wrong with that. That's a yearning for connection. The other thing I say all the time to parents is if we had the technology our kids had, we would have used it as they use it. Of course. Right? I mean, like, we, we would have killed for it, really. And, and, and when parents sort of seem to be hesitant to accept that, then I'll say next— um, do you remember the feeling on your ear when you had had the phone on it for so long that it hurt, you know, and you were uh-huh. talking to somebody and you would say, um, hold on, wait, I have to switch sides, you know, like, I mean, and yeah. th- that was us, you know, we did what we could with what we had. What we had was very lame compared yeah. to what they have. Well, I feel like we have to make, we can't just loop, you know, loop, put all of technology in one bucket and then just say, it's this one thing. Like I look at it like, um, this very powerful, highly addictive, uh, you know, toolbox or, you know, receivership for your attention that can be productive and enriching or mm-hmm. can be very destructive. So if you're spending time creating, like trying to make a really cool photograph or edit a video, like then you're in a creative mode. Um, or if you're on FaceTime with your friends and you're, you're, you know, having an exchange with that person, then you're involved in connection. But then there's just the addictive mindless scrolling through mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Facebook or you know Instagram story, not Facebook, kids don't use Facebook, Instagram stories mm-hmm. or or Snapchat where you're just consuming other people's lives and I think there's a real kind of darkness built into that in terms of how myself included, I lump myself in this, how it makes us feel about ourselves in comparison to others. And, and the impact of that on a, on a young developing mind where your social status and your, your, how you kind of um, fit into this web at school and outside of school is like life or death yeah. for young people. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I do think it's actually helpful. I've been a practicing psychologist for more than 20 years, and so I, I – started practicing when this did not have any part Mm -hmm. in family life. And then I've watched the arc of it. And one thing that is easier now than it was before is that the parents are pretty fluent themselves with how they get caught up with technology, you know, with Facebook Uh and Twitter and looking at stuff. And I I do too. I do too. Um, And I'm mindful of how it comes into my life. And so it's, there was a juncture, I would say about maybe 15 years ago where kids had MySpace and parents had no idea what any of this was and had never interacted with it at all. So that was actually in some ways more difficult because the kids were so far ahead of the grown-ups. So grown-ups are a little closer than they used to be. Um, 
there's sort of the topic of attention and how it gets hijacked, right? And then there's a topic of what you're looking at. Here's a way to think about it. We have always in schools done things like media literacy, right? Like, look at this magazine. What is that model? You know, how much has that been altered and all of that? Okay, kids are not looking at magazines anymore, right? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. The lesson, though, is basically the same, right? Like, everything's a message. Everything's telling you something. Everything is crafted in a particular way. And so what we can do right is we can just think like, okay, well, this is the media, right? It's if They're creating it, but this is essentially media that they're looking at now, and we want them to be as literate about it as possible, right? So um, there's great work done by a woman named Jill Walsh, who's an academic who looks at talking with kids about what they see on social media. And her guidance is to have them, you know, if they're scrolling on their Instagram, to say to them, how many pictures do you think she took to choose that one? And mm -hmm. tell me about that pose. Like, what's that for? What's that about? You know, so not judging, but getting them to take a critical eye and not consume it wholesale. Um, the analogy I use in Under Pressure is that everything you see on social media that people post, it's like a furniture showroom. And our own lives are actually like lived-in homes. And we know our own lives. We're only seeing the furniture showroom, but we can't help but compare them, right? And of mm -hmm. course, of course, the furniture showroom is always going to look better because it's not lived in. And we need to say that to kids all the time. That doesn't mean it fully buffers the impact, but we need to get that filter in there if we can. Yeah. So rather than shaming them or telling them to put it down or to stop doing whatever they're doing, to just in a dispassionate, neutral way, educate as best as we can about the ramifications of it. I mean, that's essentially what you're saying. I think so. Yeah. And I just ask a lot of questions, right? Uh -huh. Or, you know, like, oh, you know, th that girl, like, she's really bright, right? Like, that's that she's not, that's not part of the story she's telling with that picture. You know, I mean, to uh -huh. really just keep that conversation going um, as much as we can without annoying them too much, you know, so that they they don't want to have it at all. Are there studies uh, that look at how this is impacting young minds versus adult minds? So the truth is we just don't have the data, right? I mean, so to do those kinds of studies, in some ways it's basically impossible, right? Because we would have to do like case control and random right. assignment and all of that. And, and it's important to know that because there are some pretty scary headlines, right? There are headlines out there about, you know, um, smartphones doing all this damage to kids. Uh, we don't really have the data to be able to say mm -hmm. anything like that conclusively. Um, I will say that if there's anything I think parents should be working worrying about, I would actually just put sleep at the top of the list, at the absolute top of the list. Um this is a very boring, it's a very simple explanation for kids being stressed and fragile and anxious. But sleep is the glue that holds human beings together. And our kids get way less sleep than they need. Yeah. And social media is a big piece of that. Mm -hmm. So I'd worry about sleep. I would worry about the capacity to focus, right? We don't, we know that you really, the capacity to focus is a muscle that you build. Um, I think, and I've got suggestions I can make about like how we help kids learn to set technology aside when it is time to do focused work. Um, and I would worry about the capacity to have one-on-one -on -one conversations, to be with people um, and present and and not distracted by technology. The rest, I think, it's here to stay. Yeah. You know? Well, I don't think that we fully appreciate the power and the impact that mm -hmm. this is having on mm -hmm. all of us, not just kids. I mean, never in the history of humanity have we had such a powerful device that is so perfectly attuned to magnetize our attention in the most addictive way. And 
you know, we can sort of slough it off or just say, well, this is the way it is now. But like, if you really step back and look at it, it's incredibly powerful. And there's just no way that there aren't, um, you know, unbelievably impactful downstream impacts from this. I think th- I think we'll find that. Yeah, I do think we'll find that. I think that. we're just beginning to kind of appreciate it. And hopefully we're going to learn more. I mean, there's interesting people doing a lot of compelling work around, you know, the addictive nature of these yep. things and, you know, the data mining and all of that, of course. Um, but I think we still have a lot to learn. I think I'm with you all the way. Um, I feel like this thing got so far out ahead of us and took us all over and we're just now yeah. starting to look. Cal Newport is doing some interesting work around digital minimalism. He was minimalism. just sitting there awesome. like, uh, two weeks ago Awesome, something you know, like that. So yeah. I think there's smart people coming uh-huh. through and uh, there's probably a piece about this in the Times like every day yeah. you know, about ways to manage one's focus. Um, but I do think, you know, it, I, I just, I'm not one really, to, I don't want parents parenting from a position of fear. Like I, I really think... Um, it goes better over goes over better to say, look, it's not that I'm against technology. It's that I'm for sleep. I'm for your capacity mm-hmm. to focus. I'm for your ability to sit here with me and have a conversation without picking mm-hmm. up your phone. So I'm going to fiercely protect those because those are what I'm on the side of. And that's going to mean you can't have the technology around all the time. Yeah. And that's a tricky conversation to have when you're used to having that technology in your hand at all times to create a healthy boundary around it to protect that sleep. I mean, this is something, you know, we've gone through. Um, and the focus piece, I think, is even trickier because young minds have grown up with these devices and they're used to being stimulated from five different vectors at the same time. Uh, and I just notice, like, how young people do their homework. They've got a laptop with a television show on. They've got Snapchat open. They're playing music mm-hmm. and they've got a notebook out that they're writing on. And all of these things are happening at the same time. And I'm like, I, I don't know how you can focus on anything. Like, like, no, this is this is how we do it now. Yeah. And so myself as a parent, I'm in the position of trying to lay down the law and say, no, you have to do it the way that I did it mm-hmm. and the way that I think it should be done. Mm-hmm. Or do I say, well, we'll see how this goes when your mm-hmm. grades come and then we'll adjust. Hmm. I think they both could work. I want you to know cognitive science has your back mm-hmm. because there's no such thing as multitasking effectively. Yeah. Um, humans only have so much bandwidth. Anything you do that distracts you is chewing up bandwidth. There's no extra bandwidth. So if I'm reading and I'm listening to music, some of that bandwidth is being taken up by the music. So um, the easiest thing, right, this is, this is not um, not encouraging people with older kids is to get way out in front of it, right? To have homework habits be established uh-huh. with your first grader. Like this is something you do yeah. in the dining room. You don't you wait see. until they're 15. No, to, to, yeah. to start it. And uh-huh. and actually, and one of my friends did this great thing um, when she had kids. So she lives in Pennsylvania in a two-story home and the bedrooms are on the second floor. And her rule was, you know, no phone ever. They don't go upstairs. No technology ever goes to the second floor uh-huh. of the house, ever. Yeah. Um, And we have a rule, actually, I'm a, really flexible parent, but I, I have a no technology in any bedroom ever in the uh-huh. 24-hour day rule. Um, so I think it's easier if parents get out in front of it. Um, yeah. But if you haven't, if you haven't, one thing that parents can do that's sort of a maybe a, a compromise between what you're suggesting is to ask for an experiment, mm-hmm. to ask for an experiment. Say, like, can we do a week where you do it with all your stuff away and, and see how it feels and see how it goes and see if it goes faster? <sighs> 
Wait, how would that go over? <laughs> You're going to pry that thing you know, <laughs> out of my hand when, you know, it's cold and dead. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? No, it's they, like, it's they, tough. It's, it's it tough. becomes very emotionally yeah. heightened. Yeah. So maybe that's when you wait for the grades to come in, right? Yeah. And, and then that you say, like, this isn't work. What you're doing yeah. isn't working. we got to try something else. I think most parents are in the position of, like, dealing with it once it's a problem. Mm-hmm. As a, you know, it takes a lot of mindfulness and intent, intention um, to have addressed that at a very early yeah, age. My hat's off to those parents. I think the, the common situation is, like, well, this thing is spiraling out of control. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and then we feel like we're doing damage control. And we're in yeah. these these very emotional conversations that then, you know, become something else altogether. They do. So here's here's what's encouraging to me. I'm watching smart kids figure this out. And I've heard from teenagers, a lot of them have strategies involving technology for getting their work done without technology disrupting it. So they tell me about things like um, they, they have their phone on a timer of 25-minute intervals. And it's near them, and they're watching it tick down. And once the 25 inter- interval is passed, they let themselves check for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to work. I have no. I think this is brilliant, right? I mean, 25 minutes is long enough to focus. They probably do need a break. Um, I talk about it in Under Pressure. Um, a bunch of teenage girls over finals um, at a girls' school actually in L.A., um, gave each other permission to change each other's passwords on all of the social media that they found alluring so that they could not access their own social media and uh-huh. then um, fixed it for each other after finals to, um, to so they could have that's access. Cool. And that's cool. That also involves a lot of trust. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they, but they just, they made this pact mm-hmm. and they did that. And so one of the conversations, so I consult two days a week at a girls' school in Shaker Heights. And so what I have started to do when I want teenagers to change their behavior is I will have a whole group of teenagers and I'll say, who has strategies for getting their homework done without being distracted by it? And they suddenly, four girls in the room will start talking. Well, I do this, I do this, I do this. That I find to be a vastly more effective thing uh-huh. than me rolling in with you guys. Because it's self-generated, self-generated and they have an ownership of it. It's relevant to them. It's, it's coming from someone who's doing the same homework they're doing. And also the problem that is just true and irreducible when we roll up to try to talk to kids about technology is they're like, you don't get it. You know, you don't get what it means to me. And I think Mm -hmm. that is 100% true. And I think it's very hard for us to take guidance on something when we feel like the person trying to offer advice doesn't actually get our experience. And so if I can get teenagers talking to each other about strategies, that for me feels like the most ideal Right, because it's not coming top down from the parents. Nope. And they also know who's getting what grades in that room. Yeah. You know, and they all know everything about each other <laughs> yeah. completely yeah. in a way that you know we didn't. So it's interesting to have you know the girl yeah. that they all know is killing it pipe up and say, "This is my strategy for managing right, technology." Right, right, so right. I think, and I do the same around sleep, right? Because mm. teenagers are supposed to get nine hours of sleep a night, which very few do. And I've done the th- same thing. I'll, I'll get a big enough group where I'll say, "Okay, who here is getting roughly eight or nine hours a night?" And usually there's a couple. And then I will say, "Tell us how you make it happen," right? And get them talking. Um, that I have found to be less controlled and less satisfying than me rolling in with, you know, and all my rules. Um, and I think probably more useful to the teenagers I'm caring for. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the teenage girl friend matrix versus how kind of boys navigate their social circles. Like my sense is that Girls have much more intense 
uh, intimate friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, boys tend to have lots of friends, but it's very casual. Um, and you know, within the teenage girl universe, it's all about like this network of friends mm-hmm. is like everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, life or death earlier, I mean, it really is like the, the most important thing, mm-hmm. like the status in the group, who's doing what, how everybody is interacting. And there's a, there's a, a beautiful intimacy mm-hmm. to it, mm-hmm. um, but it is so, it's delicate and it's very um, supercharged. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wow, like where to begin? Like, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so. Help me tease this out. Yeah, tease like. this apart a little bit. Um, well, let me just put on the table, there's no biological reason for boys and girls to behave differently in their relational lives. It, what, what we see is what's socialized. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, I mean, I, there are all the differences you just describe. You know, they, they do arrive, but it's not that um, boys are somehow built differently than girls. It's just... Um, there's some really nice work done by a woman named Niobe Way about, you know, the various barriers and also times when boys do have really deep, intimate relationships with each other. But um, there's other work, uh, Michael Thompson has done some of it, where it's just not seen as, like, cool for guys to be intimate uh-huh. in their friendships. And so then they are socialized away from it. Um, girls. Here's what we know about girls versus boys in terms of how they relate. Um, girls when they are distressed, this this is important, um, are much more likely dis- to discuss the fact that they are distressed. So if somebody hurts mm-hmm. their feelings, they're likely to find a friend and discuss this at length. Boys, when they are hurt, are more likely to distract themselves, to go home, hop, you know, hop on a video game or go out, shoot hoops or something, but to just try to let it die down through distraction. And is that a socialized yeah, response Yeah, I think that's well? thoroughly socialized. But the upshot is that we start to see exactly what you're describing, which is boys become a little bit more, you know, each man's his own island and he kind of bumps up against other guys, you know, based on what they're doing together. Whereas girls are having these, you know, powerful conversations about being injured by so-and-so or, you know, something's bothering me. I'm going to uh-huh. find a friend and talk. And this is what we we then couch as, quote unquote, drama. Drama. Right, right. Yeah. So that looks like a lot of drama. Be- but so it's not that the boys are not in pain. It's not that boys are not mean to other boys. It's that the response when the meanness occurs is very different. Mm-hmm. Then another gendered finding shows up, which is the girls more than boys, again, this is socialized, are likely to experience vicarious stress. So if my friend is upset, now I'm also upset um, because she's upset. Boys more than girls, again, socialized, don't have quite the same transfer. Like, I'm sorry, you're upset. Good luck with that. Right. You know. So the impact of this this is where you start to see these really gendered patterns in terms of like how drama plays out. So let's imagine a single mean event occurs to a boy and to a girl. To the boy, he may be in quite a bit of pain and go home and play video games until the feeling dies down. Then we never hear of it again. This isn't great for him, right? It means he suffers in silence. It means he doesn't get the support he deserves, but it does kind of go quiet. Uh A girl has a mean event occur. She tells three friends because she's very upset. And now her friends are upset on her behalf. So they're going to tell other people. Yeah. So this thing could go on it for gets, like three yeah. weeks, right? And they're going to talk to the person who perpetrated yes. the. Yeah. <laughs> they've got to make it right, you know. Yeah. So so when we look at the data, Which creates on, a cascading. Yeah. Right. Okay. So just you know, so so it's interesting, and this is actually how girls get their reputation for being meaner. Is that when when there is meanness among girls, you know, it's basically spilled all over an entire mm. you know social circle. 
statistically, boys are meaner, you know, which isn't good. But in terms of um, physical violence, rumor spreading, name calling, all of that, boys way outpace girls. Um, there's some data suggesting that girls use relational violence more, exclusion, you know, that kind of thing. But there's also data showing, oh, no, boys do that too, right? Mm-hmm. So it's more, you know, that pound for pound, a single mean event has a very different sort of set of repercussions for girls than boys. Um, they both probably should take a page out of the other's book. You know, that we, we don't want boys to just be trying to stomach pain, right? We want them to, to reach out and talk to somebody. And for girls, sometimes we do need to say, I think you need to let this one drop. You know, I think continuing to discuss this may not actually help make it better at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see those distinctions. What you were asking about reminded me of something I've always observed. So um, I have this private practice I've had for a very long time, and it means I get to see rare events occur more than once. And and one pattern that I think is doesn't happen that often, but I've gotten to see it over over my time is um, when a high school girl and boy end up in a really powerful romance, you know, which happens. You know, it happens where maybe they're juniors and seniors. That's not completely antiquated. No, it's not. It's yeah. not. It still happens. And and then um, it's time to go to college, and you know, which which stinks, right? Because there's really no good outcome because you know they wouldn't have broken mm-hmm. up, but staying together is not so good. And so they decide to uncouple. You know, they decide they're not going to be together. And what I watch is that the girl has all these girlfriends that she can go to for support, you know, about about the end of this relationship and losing what it means. And the boy keeps coming back to the old girlfriend to try to get the support he needs because he does not have an emotional support mm-hmm. network of guys. Mm-hmm. And that I often think when I'm, I'm always hearing about this from the girl's perspective. So it's all, you know, I'm not quite sure <clears throat> that what I'm hearing is the whole story by any measure. But I often get the sense that for him, it was the first really intimate relationship. Whereas she has him and also four girlfriends right. she talks she's, to like that. She's well-versed in, yeah. in that relationships yeah. at that point. And so, then she's like, why is he coming back is he, to me? Yeah. He doesn't have anyone else that he, he doesn't can process have anyone this with. that he's done that with. Right. And I always am just aching for those boys. And you know, when I'm hearing the girl's side and she's like, oh, he call, keeps calling and I don't know what to do because we said we're not going to be together. And I'm thinking like, oh, that poor guy. Like, I don't know that he has uh-huh. a network of intimacies that he can fall back on. And I think it all opened up with her. You know, I think that that was right. when he really had his first- And what happens to that boy if he can't find a healthy, you know, external party with whom to process this? Like if it just continues to be internalized. What I usually see is that he kind of blows it up, right? Uh-huh. That he goes and makes out with her good friend, you know, or something like that. It, 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 it takes a very um, distracting turn. Right, like, and usually not a good one, right? But, but that it, that it, um, that it, it, he acts out in a way, and right. this is, this is, you know, sort of a pattern we've observed for a long time that when when um, girls are in distress, they're more likely to collapse in on themselves, thus the higher rates of anxiety and depression, and when boys are in distress, they're more likely to yeah. act out, get themselves in trouble somehow. It seems like a lot of the issues that we spent a lot of time talking about with respect to the socialization of teenage girls could be addressed by creating uh, a healthier way for young adolescent boys to communicate, right? Like this would ameliorate a lot of the problems that then spill into the the girls' community. So I think about this a lot, right? You know, I think about 
So you use the term toxic masculinity, right? Uh, and and I, I I know there's such a thing. I'm I'm cautious. I can't imagine that's a term that feels good for guys to hear. <laughs> you know, I, I like I'm mindful of that. Like, I, and and I you know as a psychologist, I'm always on the side of not trying to um, trigger defenses. You know, not trying uh, to get people's back up. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about the sixth and seventh grade boys who are probably having a lot of the same thoughts and feelings as every sixth and seventh grade boy, but will do none of the stuff that we don't, that isn't healthy, right? Who in no way engage in what we call toxic masculinity. You know, they're good guys and they're, they're, you know, they got crushes, but they don't call people names. And, and I've, I've gotten really interested in those guys. I'm like, what's working for them? Like, mm-hmm. how, what's the story then? Because again, like the, you know, the three guys who are acting like jerks in the class, you know, they get a lot of attention and they got a lot of power. But I, um, I think there's, I don't know boys like I know girls, but I, I was talking about this with um, a good friend of mine, a guy who has three brothers, two brothers. And I was saying, you know, I think all, I imagine all sixth and seventh grade boys are like, if they're heterosexual, they're like thinking about sex a lot and thinking about, you know, but they're not all acting, you mm-hmm. know, so so inappropriately. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, my brother was in trouble one time when he was in the seventh grade. He was in trouble with my dad about maybe not taking a, enough, paying enough attention at school or being serious enough at school. And he said, my brother at seventh grade said to my dad, I know, but it's hard because I'm like, I'm thinking about boobs all the time, you know. Uh-huh. And I thought, okay, but... I don't think this was a kid who was doing any of that stuff. So I'm actually a little, my mind is going these days to the question, and I don't know that I'm equipped to answer it, of what's working for the guys who maybe do have real friendships with other guys in the seventh grade Mm -hmm. and who don't talk about women in that way and aren't playing smear the queer, you know, uh, at recess and wouldn't do any of those things. Like, what's their story? You know, because that's, I think that's most guys. Yeah, and I think I think what happens is, you know, I would I'd probably consider myself one of those guys. Like, you're when you're talking, I'm thinking like, well, what was my experience in sixth or seventh grade? I mean, in seventh grade, I was bullied, I was quiet, I internalized, you know, whatever trauma I was experiencing, and I just was like an island unto myself. Um, and I think it stunted my emotional development. But there weren't a lot of healthy emotional outlets for processing those tricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, thoughts and experiences that you're having at that time. Yeah, yeah. I just wish we were paying more attention to the kids who are getting it right because something's working. But you mentioned being, you know, on the receiving end of that stuff, right? So then there's work to be done there for the kids who aren't doing it but are, you know, are are, uh-huh. are having having to deal with it, you yeah. know? and. And I bet you could probably divide a class, right, to kids who are perpetrating that stuff, perpetrating kids who are on the receiving end of that stuff, kids who are have no part in it. And what you'll also find is there's a fourth group, which is kids who are both bullies and victims. You know, that that also, mm. that that's a category always. Bullies and victims, meaning like they, they're, they're on both sides of that. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the kind of classic abuse cycle, is it not? I think that that's what we tend to see. But I at the same time... You know, seventh graders are goofy. Like, they're just goofy. It's right? the worst. It's the, you know, seventh just, grade is the worst. It's a bad year. Yeah. It's a bad year. <laughs> Let's um, just get that out I, of the I, it's, it's not a good year. And mm. and and I, I said in Untangled, like, you know, I just, we cannot find a cure for the seventh grade. Right. Like, we just, you know, we just, we're still thinking about it all the time. Um, I have seen perfectly 
good kids who have no reason in their history to be mean accidentally discover how much power meanness gives them and get drunk on it as seventh graders. So I do think sometimes kids are bringing to school repertoires that are lived at home, right, mm-hmm. where they, they see how you can talk to people and they think that's an okay way to talk to people at school. I think that sometimes happens. I've also seen it just kind of dawn on a seventh grade girl that like, wow, if I say something mean about her, everybody wants to hang out with me, you know? Mm-hmm. And that in that um, cognitive incapacity to reflect very much on all of it, she just goes with it, uh-huh. you know? And, 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 you know, usually by ninth or 10th grade, they've got enough perspective that they're like, whoa, I, I probably shouldn't treat that person that way. But seventh grade is just exciting. Um, there's a, a New Yorker cartoon I saw a million years ago, and it's these two guys walking up Capitol Hill holding briefcases. And one says to the other, um, how do I know I have power if I don't abuse it? Uh-huh. You know, and, I, and for me, I'm like, that's seventh grade. Like, that, yeah. is, like, that is the cartoon of seventh grade. Yeah. You know? Played out in the halls of government. Now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's bring it back to the home. I'm interested in, in how we as parents can develop better strategies around how to communicate with the young people in our lives to, you know, hopefully set our kids on a better trajectory or, or help them, you know, correct whatever, you know, mm-hmm. ill-begotten path they found themselves on. Like, this is just a constant, you know, source of... Uh, learning for me of, you know, missteps and self-corrections and trying to get it right. And of course, you know, often not getting it right. Well, I would say that a lot of my writing is about the invariable and inevitable friction that is just part of raising kids. And and I, I think I've really committed myself to writing about it because I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I write a monthly piece for the New York Times, and you know, and I've I've done pieces titled, you know, "No, Your Teenager Doesn't Hate You." It's just summer, right? And why teenagers are allergic to their parents, right? And why teenage girls roll their eyes, you know? And uh-huh. and I and I really enjoy um, trying to illuminate all that's going on developmentally that feels extremely personal to the parent, but it's not about the parent. It's not. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's this developmental path. This is like, sorry to interject, yeah. but like this is Julie's constant thing with me because I will personalize it. And uh-huh. she's she's like a Jedi at being neutral <laughs> and like just dissipating whatever tension there mm-hmm. is by, you know, making a joke or whatever. Um, and she's like, you've got to like, it's not about you. It is not about you. You're along for the ride, yeah. but this is not about you. But the reason I, I, I think I found myself in this space is I, I worry that there can be this um, this sense that one gets from reading about parenting that if you just do it this way or if you just say this magic set of words, then your child will do as you ask right. and be charming company yeah. and admire you and like and I feel like no 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 it's yeah. it's a huge mess and. Um, you're doing the best you can, and she's doing the best you can. She can, and you know, occasionally there'll be like wildly delightful moments of parenting, and the rest is um, life. Yeah. But then, so in that mess, here's what I here's what the data tell us. Like, if you if you want it to come out well in the end, which we all want it to come out well in the end, the big picture stuff, and we have you know, I mean, we've been studying parenting and outcomes for you know eighty years, 
And you throw all the studies in a hopper, right? And you and you get them to to drop out the major findings. If you are warm with your kids and if you have structure, the rest will sort itself out. Uh-huh. So there has to be a sense of, I like you, I want to be with you, um, I enjoy your company, I think you're neat, right? If you can get that in place. And then if you can have rules that matter, that are understood to be important for family life, are understood to um, be part of how we do business in this home, and enforce those, and and be a predictable parent. I, I, I actually... I think we talk about being consistent a lot in parenting. Um, I would not use that word. I would say you need to be predictable in how you do things Um, because you can be predictable and pretty weird and your kid can completely work with it because they know Mm -hmm. versus if you are unpredictable, that actually really hamstrings kids. Or if you you sporadically enforce a barrier, a boundary. Yeah, that really does kids in. And that's actually where, you know, the stories of like parental alcoholism really, uh-huh. you know, when, when we drill down on what, you know, at the granular level, why that made life so hard is it like they never knew what they were getting, right? Yeah. Whereas um, my own mom had, I had no curfew as an adolescent. You know, she was like, yeah, you'll come home when you come home, right? If I left a sink, a spoon in the sink, you know, a nuclear reaction. Uh-huh. So so like there was no like logic, right, to the relative, <laughs> yeah. right? But it was not, uh-huh. but she, I, I knew the deal, right? So you just don't leave a spoon right. in the sink and, you know, you come home when you please. And and um, and so I would just say to parents, you know, if you can be warm, if you can have rules and consistently reinforce them and be predictable in your reaction to things, uh, things will be all right. Um, and, and that I would say, especially my work around adolescence, in my efforts through Untangled and Under Pressure to really detail what the girl's side of it, right? Sort of the back, like what's happening inside of her. I would say it largely is to help parents not take the whole thing so personally. You uh-huh. know that parents feel like their teenage daughter broke up with them. You know, and yeah. and they feel like she's doing their adolescence to them. You know, as yeah, and to, that yeah. that is a um, a very narcissistic. It's natural, but it's very narcissistic because it's it's coming from this place of the parent wanting the parent's emotional needs met through the child, mm-hmm. which is unfair to the kid and just not healthy, right? It's definitely not healthy. The problem is up until about age nine, they're good for that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? So you acclimate to that. Yes. You know, like your eight-year-old mm-hmm. thinks you're awesome and funny and wants to come to the grocery store with you and likes to cuddle, you know? So I think um, there's a lot of joy in that, and, and I want there to be a lot of joy in that. Um, I think that... Um, I'm always sort of have these sweet conversations. Like I'll give a talk um, to a group of parents and and some mom will come up to me and she'll say, you know, my daughter's 11 and I think we're going to be okay. Right. You know, she says this, right? She yeah. says this. And I and I know exactly what she's uh, thinking. She's thinking like, she's not going to turn on me like those, mm-hmm. you know, badly behaved right. girls I see at the mall, you know? And I go, yeah, you know, I'm like, it's okay. You know, it's mm-hmm. okay. And I, and I just think, um, you know, I, I, I try to write, Anywhere I can, just about you know. No, it's at, at eleven they will close their bedroom door, and it mm-hmm. will have nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. This is about their need to start to establish their autonomy in the utterly bizarre scenario where they have to become independent while living at home. Right. Right. One of the things I did with Mathis, our fifteen-year-old, over the years when she was younger, 
is to joke about this impending change. Like I would say, see how great we're getting along and it's not, it's always gonna be like this, right? <laughs> so you're not gonna be one of those people who at 13, 14 is gonna slam the door in my face. We're gonna remember this moment right now, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. she would laugh. And, yeah. then, and we laugh about it now because you know, she does what 15 year old girls do. And I was like, remember when we had that conversation mm-hmm. about, you yeah. know, and, she's like, and, and we can laugh, yep. like it, it it dissipates the tension of all of it. But to get back to something you said a moment ago, which is this idea of if I just say the right thing and, you know, there's a control mechanism at play there that is highly dysfunctional. And it's about trying to make that child conform to your worldview of mm-hmm. what you think they should do and be. And that's, not good, right? It's not, and it's also not developmental. So what I mean is, the thing I'm so grateful for in my training is that um, I was really trained as a developmental psychologist. He basically said, okay, at you know at zero to twelve months, like here's what's cognitively happening for the kid, and you know, like, and I can do that for uh-huh. every year. So sometimes people will um, call me on the phone or start talking to me, and they'll be like, "My daughter, blah 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 blah," and I'll say, "I have to." The first pause, I'll say, "Like, well, how old is she?" Like, I can't process data about kids without knowing mm. the exact developmental box they're in. And so, thirteen-year-olds, um, right, are in this extremely unique developmental box where their brains are wildly dysregulated. You know, where they're very gawky. They're very easily overtaken by emotion as a function of neurological development, right? There's, it just, they are caught in this moment where their emotion centers have been upgraded, but their perspective maintaining centers have not been upgraded. And so if they become upset, the whole system, you know, crashes. And what my work feels like my main aim is so that parents know the developmental box they're in. So when their 13 year old walks in the door and they say one word and the kid loses it or, you know, has some sort of meltdown, they can actually have the developmental perspective of, oh, oh, okay, they're having a, you know, a meltdown because neurologically they can't. It's not that this is about some, you know, something uh-huh. about me. Um, and then to try to offer some strategies for getting through that moment. You know, um, so I, I would say what I aim, you know, hopefully is, is that, you know, I think the, the work that psychologists can do is the more we can just give parents a perspective that is neutral, developmental, you know, 12-year-olds are like this, 13-year-olds are like uh-huh. this, 14-year-olds are like that. You know, and it doesn't always map perfectly to onto your own kids' ages. Um, then parents can adjust. But kids are a moving target, right? And, and, and unless you have a good memory for your own adolescence or, you know, good access to developmental information, it's very easy to take them at face value, but that's not really yeah. appropriate. But the more you can do that, then you can un, you can sort of uncouple from the emotional trigger and depersonalize it, right? We all have our buttons and, yeah. and you know, our kids know where those buttons are and they know how to push them. And, you know, it's taken a lot of, a lot of work on, on my part, a lot of meditation and mindfulness work and work that I do in recovery to just be able to have the capacity, the facility to pause when agitated mm-hmm. and not just react mm-hmm. and get emotional about something, but just, you know, take a beat, take a moment mm-hmm. and try to, you know, cogitate the the neutral, you know, best next thing to say or do. I think that's awesome, right? That's one reaction. I also, I want parents to know, like, it's okay to get mad at your kids, you know, uh-huh. not in a mean, nasty way. But I think, 
you know, if you don't always have the wherewithal to not react, I think another way to look at those moments is to think, um, you know, no one's going to ever think our kids are as cute as we think they are, right? And and I think there's a lot to be said for learning at home that, you know, if you're a jerk, people aren't going to like it, you know, and they're going to get angry sometimes or they're not going to want to be with you. Um, and so, you know, in my own parenting, um, I remember when I had toddlers, I have two daughters, um, I would get mad. You know, eventually toddlers make you really mad, right? Uh-huh. And um, and I I learned to say to my daughters, you know what? I'm actually getting mad, right? Like I'm asking you repeatedly to do this thing and I know I'm being patient, but I want you to know I'm getting mad and and I'm going to start to be mad, you know, if this goes on. And then when, if they continued to be annoying, Mm -hmm. then when I got mad, I felt like you had fair warning, right? Like, so it wasn't out of the blue. Um, So I think there's a place for anger in family life. um, If a kid has really been incredibly provocative and the parent is predictable, Mm -hmm. right? And they know it's coming. I also think there's a lot of value in apologizing to kids when we screw up, right? So say we blow it, right? And and it, they didn't have it coming. Um, to me, there is no, there's a lot of power and there's a lot of beautiful research on this about rupture and repair, right? There's a lot that happens in a relationship when a parent comes back to a teenager and says, you know what, I overreacted and I owe you an apology and I am sorry. Um, there's there's a real, there's real growth that happens when parents can do that, what parents can't do is they can't keep doing it repeatedly, uh-huh. right? Like, I mean, that's where it can fall apart. But um, I'm definitely sort of the brand of psychologist who feels like, let me give you five options for how to react to a kid because it's going to depend on so many contextual factors. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you may be able to be reserved. Sometimes you might just get mad and they shouldn't be surprised because they always know that's going to get you going. And sometimes they didn't have a coming and you're going to apologize. You know, mm-hmm. but they, they all are available. Um, and in the course of the millions of interactions we're going to have, we're going to need them all. Yeah. And those millions of interactions, you know, there's, 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 there's a scientific way of kind of approaching that. And then there's a very kind of intuition based, you know, artistic way of approaching. It's like this dance, right? Mm -hmm. And you have this beautiful analogy of the swimming pool that Mm -hmm. I think kind of encapsulates that. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Sure. So um, this is an untangled, and it grew out of my observation that, you know, teenagers work to become independent. That's their job. The piece that seems to really get parents is that they don't become just slightly more independent each day. You know, they don't uh-huh. just become a little bit further and more uh, autonomous each day. That a typical pattern is that um, you haven't heard from your teenager for three days, right? Or she's barely acknowledged your existence. And then something goes wrong, right? And she's very, very upset. And so then she comes seeking the parent, right? And it may be that she's um, needing physical comfort or just wants to talk and wants to share things. It is not unusual in these moments where there is actually a physical, like they're draping themselves on uh, you or like cuddling near. Okay, so the like, girl may finally. be upset. I know, the parent's thrilled, right? The parent's like, ah, you know, and like loving it, absolutely loving it. Um, and then and then she's gone again, right? And so mm-hmm. in observing this happening in families, the, the metaphor I came up with, and it's slightly belabored, but it does work really well, um, is that the girl is like a swimmer and the water is the world and the parents are the wall that hold the whole thing together. They're the pool. And swimmers want to be out in the water, right? I mean, they want to be out in the pool and and, and with they want to be with other swimmers. They want to be gaining strength. And I keep thinking about this metaphor. You know, when you're in the middle of the pool, you're not thinking about the edge of the pool. Like that's the furthest from right. your mind, right? 
But then they get dunked or they get exhausted or something. And they have that feeling, you know, I think all of us maybe can remember this from swimming lessons where they're like, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, right? So they come scrambling for the wall, which is the parent. And they cling to the parent to get their breath back. Okay, so the parent's loving it. I think that usually what happens for teenagers is they do have that swimming pool lesson experience where they're like, oh, wait, never mind, I'm fine. (laughs) You know, and so then- Goodbye. Goodbye. But I think actually it becomes a pretty abrupt goodbye because they're like, I'm fine. And oh my God, I'm in my mother's bed, right? Like this is so awkward. So they shove off, right? They they push off in a pretty abrupt way. So they may say, and I I, I love this about teenage girls, even my own, like that that margin of like um, mean but not punishable commentary, you know, Uh that they make. So they may say like, wait, did you wear that? today like out you know or something like that like it's just with like a razor razor blade precision yes yes and so the parents repeated experiences i have no idea where you are oh my god you're letting me cuddle you you just kicked me in the stomach right and Uh and it's sort of on repeat and so um what i wrote that up for is not because i'm like and so here's the magic solution to prevent this because you Uh actually cannot prevent this and i actually don't want you to prevent this um, though I don't think your kids should be rude. You know, if they say something really rude, you can say, like, that's rude. You know, we don't talk like that. Um, what I wanted was for parents, and this is exactly what we were talking about, to know this this decor. Like, this is what's happening. This is not meant as a, as a personal rejection. Your daughter can breathe again. Now she's on, you know, to her next thing. Um, and so what my aim in, in offering parents this metaphor was so that they would savor when they did get to have those moments. And um, I got this wonderful letter. I get letters, which is like really fun from readers, like handwritten yeah. and, and it's like, or sometimes typed, you know, it's like a really fun thing. And I had this mom write me a while back and she said, you know, I bought Untangled for my daughter, but of course 80% applied to my son. And she said, I want you to know boys do that swimming pool thing too. And, mm-hmm. and what she described, she said, I have a 17 year old son And every once in a while, he'll come in the den where my husband and I watch television, and he will lay his head in my lap and ask me to rub his back, right? And she said, and then he'll stand up and leave without a word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she said, like, I was like, like, what just happened? Exactly. How could I blow this? And she said, and then I read your book and I realized what was happening. And she said, so now when he comes and he lays his head in my lap, she said, my, I, I, I savor it. And she said, and my husband looks over at me and he mouths the words swimming pool to her. Uh, yeah. And she said, and I just, I know it may last 90 seconds and I'm just going to enjoy it. And I know that when he stands up to leave, it's because he feels okay again, not because he doesn't want to be right. with me. And that's your job. Yeah. To help that person feel okay. You're the yeah. safe harbor. And yeah. the pool doesn't exist without the wall, but it's not about the wall. Yeah. So... That's, so that's super interesting. Yeah, I, I, I loved that one. Yeah. yeah. And I think it speaks to this need that we all have as parents to let go of, of you know, we always, we, always we, we romanticize these moments in the past and we have this urge for it to go back to that way. And the more we can kind of let go of that and just understand that that's, that's not what this is about. This no. is about, you know, trying to prepare them for the world. It is. And, and and I do, I have thought a lot. I, I sort of joke with my own 15-year-old daughter about like the idea of them becoming independent on, and autonomous while still thoroughly dependent. I, I, I joke with her sometimes. I call it the impossible project. Mm-hmm. right? And, and I, I was, um, I remember <laughs> one day um, 
she she decided she really liked Beyonce at around age 13. And okay, well, I've liked Beyonce for a really long time, uh-huh. right? And so- This be our bonding thing. Well, no, no, <laughs> no, because yeah. I because I couldn't like Beyonce anymore because she liked uh-huh. Beyonce. And okay. I remember we were in the kitchen and we had music playing and it was like a Beyonce song and I was bopping to it. And she's like, mom, mom. You know, she wanted me to stop. And then in the next- Second, she's like, "Oh, can you open the cheese?" <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. it was just like, "You can't do this. It's not cool, right?" And then also, "Can you please take care of me in this sort right. of like childish right, way?" Right, right, right. And I just, I just, and I said, "Oh, this is the impossible project." Like uh-huh. I sort of joked with her about it, but I do think, like, let's take a minute and realize we are saying, like, I want you to become a full-grown, independent person while you live under my roof, by my rules, and I drive you places, and tell you what I don't feel comfortable with you wearing. Like, uh-huh. how's that going to be a smooth thing? Yeah. You know? And, and, I, and I, I guess that the reason I like to articulate that is I'm so much on the side of saying, like, this is situational, right? This isn't that your kid's screwing it up or you're screwing it up. It's that the design of this is going to create a lot of friction. Mm-hmm. And that's all right. What's the best strategy for navigating the kind of emotional shutdown that occurs, you know, the typical, like, how was your day? Fine. What happened? Nothing, you know, like, while the phone, you know, scrolling the phone and you're like, well, I've just been relegated to, you know, transportation for this individual, (laughs) you know, and there's that sense of like, all the intimacy, you know, that we had is gone. And now I, I don't even feel like I can, like, no matter what I do, I can't connect with this person. And there's a, there's kind of a, a despair that overtakes the parent in that predicament. Okay, so there's like 14 answers to that question. Yeah. Okay, so um, the first is that let us let us think for a minute about what school is. Okay, so school is you take 20 to 30 kids and you put them in a room and you basically have them have a 45-minute meeting. And when that meeting's over, they go down the hall with the same 20 to 30 kids, have another meeting. And they do this all day, every day, for nine consecutive months. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, so no grown-up could make it through that, right? And kids are pretty gracious about it, and they get through it, and they're, um, they don't punch people very often. And they, you know, they sort of manage the day. But school, even wonderful schools, like it's a very exhausting thing. And so I, I think a lot about that dynamic when the kid comes home and the parent's like, how was school? And the kid's like, right. really? Like, yeah. you want me to recount like this? So I think that that can be some of what's happening. I also think... There's often a dynamic where we think connect we think about connecting in terms of how we have in mind to connect, right? So the adult approach to this is like, I'm gonna ask you questions and you're gonna answer those questions, right? That's our agenda, right? Kids like, ah, that's not my agenda. What is interesting to me is that often later in the evening or close to bedtime, teenagers will often put forward a topic or raise something. And and parents don't always pick it up. Right. So we're like, hey, I'm ready to connect, you know, mm-hmm. and then we want to connect. And the kid will later say something like, you know, something really weird happened in study hall. And the parents will be like, right. Checking right. my email. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so what what is it's I think it's actually pretty rare that there's a kid who's not making those overtures. I think that often parents feel like, no, I, I tried to talk to you earlier. Right. That and moment is passed. That moment is passed. Now I'm busy. Now I'm busy. And the kid is actually putting topics on the table that are not being brought up picked up by the parent either because the parent is distracted or, I mean, human. Like, I don't feel critical about this, but they're distracted or the topic, like, they don't even know how to engage it. Like, it's kind of a weird one, you mm-hmm. know, or the, the teenager wants to show them the YouTube video they're interested in. Like, mm-hmm. there's stuff like that. Or um, 
my my daughters like to watch Vine compilations. Mm-hmm. Like I find these so weird. Like I mm-hmm. can't. But that's what they want to do with me, and they want me to look at them with them. And and I really try to not. You're like, what? Why is this funny? Why yeah, is like, this funny? Yeah. Like I really like I like, I cannot <laughs> figure out Vine uh-huh. compilations. But then here's the other thing I want to say about this. Um, in the vein of like what connecting means to teenagers. So again, like I've practiced long enough that I've, I've had a couple rare things that I've gotten to see a few times. And so I consult two days a week at the school, which means the girls know me well and I'm sort of a piece of furniture for them, which I love. And so it's happened a few times where girls will find me spontaneous and be like, Dr. DeMore, do you have a minute? And I'll say, yeah. And they'll come in and their complaint is that their parents are not home enough. Um, and invariably the girl talking to me is some ridiculously put together junior who could basically be a CEO of a company at this point, you know, just one of those kids. And they'll complain their parents are out a lot or really preoccupied with another sibling who's maybe having a hard time. And the complaint is earnest and genuine. But even as the girl's sharing it with me, I'll think, if they were home, I'm pretty sure you would not acknowledge their mm-hmm. presence. But here the girl is saying that she misses them. And so that caused me to write a piece a while back called what do teenagers want, colon, potted plant parents, right? They actually don't want us to ask so much with the questions. They don't really care what we did today, usually. But they want us there leading boring middle-aged lives and available should we be needed, um, which I know can sound very, you know, kind of narcissistic on behalf of teenagers. Mm-hmm. But... I don't think we should give short shrift to the idea that our physical presence and our availability for them is really important, even if they are not outwardly acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the best metaphor developmentally for this is actually when we look at videos of um, toddlers, when we bring them into labs and how they explore environments and we're looking at attachment questions. Securely attached toddlers will start in their parents' lap and there'll be all these alluring toys around. And then they'll descend from the parent's lap and play with the toy. And then they'll come back and sit with the parent for a minute and then explore further and then come back and just touch the parent's knee without looking at the parent and then explore further. And so I think that's happening again, you know, with this sort of second individuation of adolescence where in order for it to go out in the world safely, there has to be the sense of like, my base is here and I care where you are. I'm just not going to talk to you that much. I don't mm-hmm. want you to ask me too many questions. Mm-hmm. So if you're home and available, that's more connection than you realize, even if it's not what you had in mind. Yeah, it's super interesting. It's sort of like, uh, you know, the I-beams that that hold up, the, you know, the ceiling of the house or the, yeah. the roof of the house. We don't pay a lot of attention to it, but we need it to be there. Yeah. And we're glad that it's there. Yeah. But we're not going to romanticize it. No. And we're create gonna... a lot of <laughs> dialogue around it. Like but so. just- yeah, that sense that that like just knowing stability. Yeah, right? and that that and it and it's sufficiently valuable that teenagers will come find me to complain about its absence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, whereas the parent would think, well, what do they care? Like yeah. they don't, you know, when I'm around, they don't talk to me. So yeah. what's a big deal? Yeah. Right. So I really, um, it's a great gift to give your kid if you can mm-hmm. just sort of um, be a genderless with them. And that that actually for me feels like the most important point, which is. Most adults, when they're interacting with teenagers, have an agenda. And their teachers do, their coaches do, their college counselors do. Like, you know, there's something to try to make happen. And so often when we as parents are with our kids, like we're advancing an agenda. Like, so tell me about your day, right? Or 
you know, and we can tell them to go do stuff and they got to go do stuff. I'm interested in parents seeing the creation of agendaless times as a critical form of connecting with their kid. Yeah, that's that's um, very reassuring and cool. I'm just thinking about the parent out there who does only have a limited amount of time with their kid, mm-hmm. like the dad who works all day and then he's home and you know there's only two hours before the kid goes to sleep and the dad wants to make sure that the homework's done. And so it becomes agenda-driven only because there isn't enough time or bandwidth for those moments of just letting all of that go and being. Yeah. So worth trying to protect. Yeah, yeah. There's also ways, though, even that dad, I know a great- Or mom. Or mom, mom, right? Uh, You know, um, it's not unusual. I've heard, I've got two fantastic examples. One is of a dad where he and his daughter both enjoy pictures of the ocean, you know, and the ocean. So he'll just send her, he'll text her photos he comes across of the ocean, right? right. You know, and and that- and he, little things throughout the day. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're connected and I'm thinking, but there's no, like, she doesn't have to respond or anything like that. Uh, another dad, I love this, um, his college-age daughter um, watches The Bachelor. So he started watching it uh-huh. so they'd have a topic right. to share, you know? <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, that's like, that's her agenda. It is cute uh-huh. and it works, you know? And so then, and he said like, so first we'll start the phone call and I'd be like, did you see what happened? Right. And then mm-hmm. invariably like she'll tell him something that he was hoping to find out about yeah, her life yeah, in yeah. college. But like, I'm really interested in that kind of creativity where, you know, the parent is trying to get with the kid's agenda as a form of connecting. Yeah. Yeah, those little things that don't take up a lot of time, but indicate like, hey, I'm thinking about you. Yeah, and I, I know you. what you like, and I'm yeah. going to try to like it too, or yeah. I'm going to be curious about it. My youngest daughter, she just loves animals and nature. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'll, I send, I do the same thing. I send her a little text of little animal videos on Instagram or stuff uh-huh. like that when I see something cute. I think that matters. Yeah. I think that matters. Um, and it's her agenda. So let's shift gears to... Um, and we've been most of what we've been talking about is stuff that you covered in Untangled uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and in the writing that you do for the New York Times and stuff like that. But the subject and the focus of of, of the new book is really um, pressure and anxiety, yeah. specifically yeah. with respect to adolescent girls and yeah. this kind of epidemic that we're now seeing um, around the pressure that they're weathering. So mm-hmm. maybe flesh that out a little bit. Sure. So um, two things inspired me to write this book. Um, one, how much people are now talking about stress and anxiety. You know, I, I feel like I have not had a conversation in the last 10 years around an adolescent where at least one of those words wasn't present, if not at the center of the conversation. The other is that um, there is a, 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 a grand canyon between how the popular culture talks about stress and anxiety and how psychologists understand stress and anxiety. And, and it's causing part of the problem. So mm-hmm. the chap- the first chapter in Under Pressure articulates the clinical and research-based understanding of stress and anxiety, which is largely that psychologists are pretty okay with these, that um, stress is a normal function. It occurs anytime there's growth. It occurs anytime we operate at the edge of our abilities. Um, school is supposed to be stressful, is a whole section of the book. Um, good things are stressful. You know, having a baby come into your house for the first time is like wildly stressful thing. Um, stress also happens around bad things. Um, stress that is not overwhelming 
actually causes durability. It actually makes people able to weather new difficult things. Um, I think about this a lot. You know, I'm 48 and I think like, you know, a real benefit of being 48 is like stuff doesn't get to me like it used to uh -huh. get to me. You know, yeah. like what constitutes a crisis? Like it's got to be pretty bad right now, yeah. you know, and that's as a function of having lived, right? Um, so there is such a thing as chronic stress and such a thing as traumatic stress and we don't like those. But so long as people are able to recover from periods of stress, largely it makes people grow. Mm -hmm. Um same deal on anxiety. It is a normal and healthy and protective function. It is an evolutionarily installed system to alert us to threats. We get anxious if we're driving and someone near us is swerving. We get anxious if we're procrastinating and we need to get going on our work. Um, it's an alarm system that that does keep us on track and keep us safe. Uh, it can break. It can go off all the time for no reason. Um it can go off way out of proportion, you know, a kid having a panic attack about about a quiz. But um, I feel very strongly about wanting to get that message out there because with the wholesale pathologizing of stress and anxiety, seeing it all as harmful and bad, um, we are running into the problem where kids are now stressed about being stressed and anxious about being anxious, mm -hmm. which is not necessary. That's ex exacerbating it in this vicious circle. Absolutely. And, and I... I do, you know, I, I think a lot like, how did this gulf emerge, right, between psychology's really relative comfort with stress and anxiety, like we largely see them as healthy and protective, um, and the culture's view. And and I have started to think like, I think the wellness industry may have a hand in this, right? I mean, I think that there's there's money caught up in selling the idea that you're supposed to feel calm and relaxed all the time. Mm. And I feel, you know, there's a, a whole industry now built up around this idea. And then I think, and I can start to sound a little weirdly conspiracy theory about this, but I, I, I then think, okay, so then say I've bought this idea, right? That I'm supposed to feel calm and relaxed most of the time. And then I get up and I have any regular day, right? <laughs> you know, right. Um, now I'm going to think, well, now I need a solution yeah. to the fact that I feel stressed. I don't anxious. feel like that yoga girl yeah. on Instagram who looks all blissed out yeah. while she's the CEO of three companies. Right, exactly. So now they'll sell you a solution to not mm -hmm. feeling that way, right? So, so I, I, I mean, this is where this is like my outer limits of like weird thinking about this. But sometimes I think like, I, I feel like I almost want to rent like those planes with banners behind them, you know, and fly them over major American cities, and and my banners would say something like like Hey, everybody! Like you're not supposed to feel all that great that often, you know? <laughs> like yeah. if you okay, occasionally, yes, but not all day every day. Well, that yeah. reminds me a lot of the work that Susan David has done, um, who's been on the show, and uh -huh. you know, around emotional agility and, uh -huh. and just being resilient. And, yeah. and it's not about avoiding stressors; it's about learning how to, you know, navigate them and process them. And you have this, you know, you analogize it to weightlifting. I mean, as an athlete, it's sort of like you yeah. welcome stress into your life. Stress is the only way that you get better at anything. Yes, and it expands your capacity to do more work. You get stronger. Yes emotionally, mentally, and also physically. So these are things that, that we need in yes. order to grow. Uh, so it's not about, you know, removing them from the equation, but I'm wondering whether, you know, there's this statistic that we're, we've seen an increase something like 55% um, in the stress and anxiety uh, among adolescent girls with no um, relative increase among adolescent boys. So. Is this a social perception? Is it that vicious cycle of feeling bad about being stressed and creating more stress? Is there something 
new and unique and different that's happening with adolescent girls now that's culturally created that is chronic and malignant in a way that we have to address it in new ways. So I think it's probably like D, all of the above, right? So I do think for everyone culturally, the misunderstandings about stress and anxiety are making things worse. And I do feel like I'm on this this mission to try to clarify uh-huh. um, the professional understanding. Okay, but then you do see these jumps for girls that we're not seeing for boys. And I think there's stuff going on, right? And this is really what the rest of Under Pressure is about. So chapter one is like, here's how stress and anxiety really work. And then chapters, you know, two through six really sort of go through the layers. And some of the layers that I think are unique for girls are um, the intensity of their social interactions, right? I mean, we do see, you know, kind of back to our earlier conversation, though boys may suffer in more silence, they also tend to feel better faster, right? Things die down quicker, whereas girls' strategies Mm -hmm. for managing social stuff can lead to kind of an exacerbation. Um, So I talk in- tail. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We're still on this? Still, really? So I talk in under pressure about Uh helping girls manage conflict much more effectively than usual and also giving them permission to not engage in a conflict, to just let something Mm -hmm. drop, which we don't do. Um, I talk in under pressure about the amount of harassment they're dealing with, right? I think that's a very real factor. And I think that may be worse, right? I mean, I think that may be worse. I Again, porn may be part of that story. Um, I talk about girls at school. The landscape for girls at school is such that they are crushing it. Girls are incredibly good students. They are, by some statistics, like 70% of high school valedictorians are going to be girls. Um, they are doing extremely well. The boys are not doing as well as they should be. But girls are putting tremendous pressure on themselves academically, and I think that's part of why we're seeing these rising rates of stress and anxiety. For in them. a way that's different in the generation that preceded them? Um, I do think what's happened is school has changed in a generation. So um, what I, I, I can say with confidence is I feel like largely high school has come, college has come to high school and high school has come to middle school. Uh-huh. So what we're seeing now is that for very ambitious high school students, they're taking an average of eight APs, if not 13. So when we were in high school, that wasn't even an option, right? Mm. So you combine a highly conscientious student who, girls also engage in very inefficient study strategies and we let them, you know, they recode their notes and color code and all of this, which usually is unnecessary. Um, You combine something like that with eight APs and you're gonna get, you know, chronic stress. Like you can't avoid it. and then I do worry about the culture and, and its impact on girls. You know, the expectations about being attractive and being agreeable and, you know. Um, and so I, I think there's a special set of pressures. Yeah, for everything daughters. is heightened. Everything's heightened. Boys suffer. Boys suffer in ways that I don't know nearly so well as I know the story about girls. Um, but I do think there's a, there are real factors. That brings stress and anxiety up disproportionately for girls. Yeah. Let's talk about the language piece. Um, oh, yeah. It is interesting, you know, and and somewhat counterintuitive also, some of the things you write about with yeah. respect to, uh, you know, how girls talk about themselves mm-hmm. and what the culture thinks about how that should shift or change depending upon your perspective. So in terms of like, Girls' speech and, and our yeah. policing of it. Okay, yeah, yeah. so this is really like I loved yeah. writing this up. So 
One thing that you will see in the culture around trying to help empower girls is guidance to them about how they should speak, right? And and um, it's not unusual to see articles like, you know, telling girls not to apologize so much, you know, and not to use hedges, which is a any any linguistic form where you kind of soften what comes next, like, oh, would you mind, or I'm so sorry, mm-hmm. or just, or like, or things like that. And the rationale for this guidance is that and, and I'll quote Naomi Wolf, who wrote a piece right. along these lines, um, you know, that, that girls are undermining their own power, you know, that they, they need to use their strong female voice in order to sort of achieve a more equal place in the society. Which, you know, it makes, it, it sounds good. It sounds good. Like, you know, this is a very plausible argument. But then along comes this academic feminist linguist named Deborah Cameron, who um, whose work I'm really interested in. And she's at Oxford. She's not someone who... Um, is known well in the, in the popular culture uh-huh. in the same way Naomi Wolf is. And she has taken this up very aggressively and wrote actually a very sharp retort to Naomi Wolf about um, Naomi's piece around saying, like, girls shouldn't use um, vocal fry that, uh, you know, sound like the Kardashian, yeah. you know, um, and they shouldn't use uptalk, the rising inflection at the end of a, of mm-hmm. a sentence. And here's what Deborah Cameron says back. She says, okay, first of all, if you look at the data, there is no such thing as girls' speech. Um, when we look at it statistically, girls and boys and men and women speak, they use the same patterns. It is true often, though, that people hear it more if it comes from the stereotyped group. So there are studies that look at um, where linguists record re- speech and then play it back. And if it's a girl, you'll hear her say like a lot more, even if she says it at the exact same mm. rate as a, as a boy. Um, and then Deborah Cameron does point out there's a there's a tiny juncture. Girls drive language change. Adolescent girls drive language change. So there's when language is changing, which is always changing. There's sometimes a moment where girls are using a speech form that people aren't using, other everybody else isn't using, and then we all adopt it. So we all start to use. They're the leaders. They're the leaders. How yeah. is that? How that's interesting. They're just at the vanguard of language mm-hmm. change. They're the most innovative. They're, the, they, you know, like, I mean, and one of the best things about being with teenagers is, like, I get all the new um, slang, uh-huh. right? So I don't know if this has come to California, but um, extra, have you heard this? I don't know. Oh, it's the best, you know. Yeah. Blake, Blake knows. <laughs> so it, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's the best. It's the best. Like, uh-huh. it's basically, like, they'd be fine. They just need to take it down a notch. So they'll be like, uh-huh. oh, my God, so-and-so is being so extra about this, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant, right? So this is like, this is the Uh kind of innovation that girls give us. Um, But for the most part, there's no such thing as female speech. Yeah. Okay. So then if you just kind of keep following this out, then the next question is, okay, but even if girls, even if say there were such a thing that, you know, that men are bold and direct and women need to be that way too, we want to be careful about that. Um, and here's a here's a great story. This is not an under pressure. I had this conversation after I'd written it, but it just it captured it so well. So a friend of mine, Kevin, is a federal prosecutor. So he is in charge of a large group of young lawyers whose job it is to mm-hmm. ask him questions all day. And he and I were talking about this. And he said, you know, uh, the male lawyers will come to my office and just ask their question. And my female lawyers will come and say, do you have a minute? Right. And he was reflecting on this and he was thinking, you know, the men should do what the women are doing, right? It's actually not appropriate for them to just, it's like the women are more appropriate. So rather than thinking about it in terms of the women or the girls needing to change their behavior pattern, their speech patterns, the men are the ones who really In this this context, yeah. yeah. But then he also said, 
the guys are getting more of their questions answered. So it's working right. for the guys, right? Yeah, it's it's it, it, it's both, really. I mean, because if the culture doesn't change to compel men to change that that you know tick, then mm-hmm. women should adopt the Naomi Wolf approach. Well, let's think though. So here's where it gets interesting again. Maybe they should. We do not want to promise to teenage girls that it will work for them the way it works for the guys, uh-huh. right? We also have tons of data showing that if a girl were to do the equivalent, like just start with her question, the culture sees that differently than when the guy does it. The guy is being bold, direct, assertive. She's uh-huh. being pushy, annoying, yeah. and brash. So what I say to teenage girls, I say, I'm not saying don't. I'm not saying don't get angry, don't be direct, don't be assertive, don't be bold. I'm not going to promise you it's going to work for you the way it's going to work for a mm-hmm. guy. So if you do it, like you should be ready to rumble. Like you may need to, right? And I worry that often in the, you know, be bold and direct and use your strong female voice, um, the the implicit message is because this will be successful for you, right? We actually don't have the data suggesting that. We have the opposite. Okay, but here's where uh, Deborah Cameron brings it home. She's like, you know what, Naomi, instead of going after how girls speak, she, and Deborah Cameron says, like, you're doing the work of the patriarchy for it. Why don't we go after the structures that go after how girls speak? Mm-hmm. And this is actually a well-worn pattern that we sometimes go after a group by going after how they talk, right? That, that um, criticizing their language. And the best example, and I didn't include this in Under Pressure because I feel like you need the, 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 to hear it to have it really make sense, is um, so that vocal fry, like the, uh, uh, oh my God, right. you know, that everybody hates, 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 hates when girls do it. Okay, so this is also conventional among upper crust British males. So if you think about uh-huh. Hugh Grant. <laughs> Yeah. It is the exact, exact same That's speech so form. so funny. Right? But it's such a good example. Uh-huh. It's not about the speech. It's about the speaker. Right? So a woman does, oh, my God. And we think she sounds like such a dang bat, and we can't stand it. And then Hugh Grant does his, oh, my, my. Ha, ha, ha. Right. And, and, and it's so high charming. Brow. It's so charming. And so, so the... So I basically, like, I make a mess of all of this, right? And I just ask us to revisit it. And where I land is, hey, everybody needs a verbal toolbox. Everybody needs a really elaborate repertoire for communication because what is more complicated than communication, right? Even nonverbal communication is an incredibly Mm -hmm. complicated thing. So what I say to girls is like, you should all have your hammer, right? If you're in a bar and someone touches your butt, like you should be, you know, ready to really put them in their place. And then you should all have your tweezer where you say, do you have a minute? Like, I have a question for you, right? And what I say to them is your job is to get the job done. And to have a wide enough communication repertoire to make it happen. And my favorite way to show them how shrewd and tactical they already are is to say, you know how you ask your parents for something that mm. you know they don't want to give you. And they'll like smile, right? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're like jujitsu black yes, belts with that. Yes. And often it involves a lot of the speech patterns we criticize. We're like, dad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry to bother you, but right. Okay, this is not a girl being weak. This is a girl being an absolute ninja, right, mm-hmm. in this moment. And so I'm just really interested in crediting girls for how nuanced and sophisticated they are with language. And then, of course, there are girls who abuse like and who abuse I'm sorry. And and then I think with them, we say, like, what's it about? Like, what purpose is it serving for you? What else could serve that purpose? Yeah, I mean, that's the only kind of pushback that was going on in my mind, you know, from a psychological perspective, 
the words that are consistently coming out of your mouth are ref- are a reflection of your interior life and how you feel about yourself. And when your default tape is deferential mm-hmm. and you know as if you're you know apologizing for taking up space, mm-hmm. your words are going to reflect that mental you know disposition. And that's what really needs to be addressed. We need to look into it. But I would say, let's be curious, not critical, right? Let's mm-hmm. let's ask her, you know, you say I'm sorry a lot. Like, talk to me about it. And I have yet to meet a girl over age 14 who can't give you a really interesting answer to that uh-huh. kind of question. You know, they can reflect on it. Yeah. And, and it becomes, you know, habits or tics, um, yeah. which they can change, you know. When we're thinking about and talking about the stress and anxiety um, on young people, specifically girls, what are your thoughts on this college admissions <laughs> scandal? Because, and the reason I'm asking is that, you know, I'm interested in how much of this stress and anxiety is being created by the parents. Oh. So, if we hold on to the idea that there's 25 schools that we really want our kids to go to, we're going to make it bad. And there's just no getting around it. The statistics on getting your kids into those mm-hmm. 25 schools, you know, are so dramatically different than they used to be. Um, you know, when kids say to me, you know, however competent, however incredible they are, you know, when they say, like, I'm, I'm looking at Harvard and Yale and Princeton, I'm like, great, and buy a lottery ticket and, like, see how – come tell me how it goes, you know. Um, we can make it way, way, way better if we just say, oh, my gosh, there's literally thousands of amazing American colleges you know, and a great fit for our kid is out there. I mean, that would change everything. Yeah. And um, co- it's different now than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. It's totally different. And and it's – but it's not a crisis that it's very hard to get into these places because there's so many excellent places. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I talk about in Under Pressure is we have no data – the data do not tell us that professional or economic success contribute to well-being in adulthood. Um, everybody assumes it does. That's not actually what matters. And I think that's often what drives this sense of like, you have to go to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, the data say, if you want adult well-being, you cultivate good relationships, you do work that you find meaningful, and you feel that you're skilled at that work, which you actually don't yeah. have to go to college for. So I, I think we could reframe it if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. We're in this cultural moment now where uh, we're so worried about creating these these kinds of stresses and anxieties that we're seeing that, uh, you know, we've perpetrated this kind of snowflake culture where everybody gets a medal and we don't want anyone to feel bad. And perhaps there's a good intention behind that. And one of those intentions very well may be to ameliorate this stress and anxiety so that we, you know, we're, we're not seeing it metastasize mm-hmm. in young people, but we're seeing the opposite Result, right? Yeah. Like, we're how, it worse. how do you think about all of this? Um, what I think is we want Goldilocks stress, right? Not too big, not too little, but just right. And you're not going to get it every day. But for sure, we do not want to prevent stress in children. We want them to have the inoculating mm-hmm. function of having something go wrong, becoming quite upset about it, getting empathy, and then figuring out how they're going to recover. That will build their capacity to weather yeah. difficulty. Well, the recovery piece is is the key, yeah, right? Yeah. Like in the same sense of of an athlete, you need to repair yourself yeah. in between your workouts. You need to recover. You can't be in a state of persistent chronic stress. And I think that yes. that above and beyond anything is why we're seeing these increased rates, right? Well, the, so the truth is, right, school for some kids 
is so difficult. When there's too many APs yeah. and there's too, like, you know, it's just never It's going to be And then during stress. the summer, they've got to do something yeah. that looks amazing on a college yeah. application essay or whatever. Yeah. So then we get into questions of chronic stress. But for the most part, you know, the, the workout metaphor, the weightlifting metaphor is ideal because it is. It's like you do something difficult, you then, you know, repair and regrow and, and, and are stronger than you were. Um, I do think the other thing I love about the weightlifting and exercise metaphor is that sometimes people get stuck because stress and anxiety don't feel good. And so then there's a sense, well, then it can't be good for you. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean, exercising- And we're supposed to your, feel good all the time. Yeah. And also exercising at your limit doesn't feel good, right? So, and people can remember that piece. Um, and, and then, yeah, we don't want to kind of keep going with this idea that you're supposed right. to feel so good all the time. What are some of the big mistakes that you see parents making time and time again where you're just like, oh, my Lord, if they just knew, uh, if they just did it like this, <laughs> things would be so much smoother? Um, it's funny. I don't I'm, – I'm really cautious about criticizing parents because I love them and I think they're working so hard. One thing I have – It's not about criticizing. No, no, just, but here's something I'm a little curious about. Here's something yeah. I'm really curious about. I. We have not reckoned with what it means that parents have real-time updates on their kids' moods due to texting. Like, I I think this is a bigger hazard than we have reckoned with. Um, Kids are often through the day texting their parent about this upset or this disappointment or this annoyance, and parents are responding through the day with, you know, with feedback or support or suggestions Uh or, you know, worse, picking up the phone and calling the school, you know, my kid's in the bathroom upset, go get her. You know, that that's not an unusual thing in the life of a school anymore. Um, and so I would probably put at the top of the list that we've slipped into a place as a function of digital technology where much longer and later into development, kids are using their parents for emotional um, reassurance and sometimes like fixing than we have ever before. And and I, I know this can't be right. Mm-hmm. I know this can't be right. Um, and I talk in Under Pressure about a mom who came up with a genius solution because she was getting texts all day from her 14-year-old. And of course, like, the mom's date was ruined, right? Because she was, right. you know, upset. And and then the the girl was, you know, usually rejecting her suggestions anyway, you know. So the mom got her daughter a notebook, a beautiful notebook, and said, you know, I want you to write in the notebook everything you want to text me during the day. And then at night, like, if you want to show it to me, I'd love to see it. Uh-huh. And so often the girl had no interest. Like the girl used Uh it. The girl did it. But she had no interest in showing her mom what was in there because it was over. Like, you know, rear view mirror. Like she didn't care anymore. And I thought it was such a beautiful um, half step, you know, saying like, I want to, I care and I'm interested. I don't want to know in real time, you know. So I, I would just ask parents to not go lightly into that space of being in emotional touch with their kid all day. Yeah. What, uh, you know, how much information is too much? You oh, know, like how, yeah. you know, where, where, where is that demarcation line, the DMZ between um, being involved in your, in your adolescent's life in a healthy way versus like, well, you don't need to know everything that they're yeah. doing, that there, there is something healthy about them, you know, yeah. having their own private. Uh, I actually am pretty fierce advocate for adolescence privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one's had to become one in, in a digital age, right? I mean, you and I had a lot of privacy just because our parents had no way, you know, to know yeah. either physically where we were 
or, you know, what we were like curious about. Now I just like got on my bike, see you dinner. Yeah. 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 And we had whole worlds to ourselves. Mm. You know, they didn't know how we spoke to our friends. They didn't know a lot about our social networks unless we chose to share. Um, So I think the other thing that I'm curious about is what it means. I mean, we are the first generation of parents who's had this volume of information available to us on our kids. Um, My general rule on this is you got to know your kid in terms of how much you're going to know, right? So if you have a kid who's super impulsive and getting themselves into trouble all over town, I would I would keep that kid on mm-hmm. a very short leash and have a lot of information about them. If you have a pretty steady, predictable, level-headed kid, I would say unless there's smoke, I would not assume anything's on mm-hmm. fire. I would give them a, cut them a wide berth. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'm finding myself saying a lot to parents is that um, – I mean, I've been a practicing clinician for 25 years. I, I, I can honestly say I've never seen a full-blown crisis arrive in 24 hours. You know, that, that usually there's, there's a run-up to something going wrong, right? And, and I would take off the table, you know, like if your kid is attacked or something, like, you know, that. But when parents, I sometimes worry that parents have this sense maybe caused by the media of like, you have to track all the data all the time because there might be a piece of information in there that's going to illuminate for you some terrible uh-huh. problem you would never otherwise know. I feel like if your kids haven't dinner with you on a pretty regular basis and you're around and you're sort of present in their lives, it's pretty hard for them to get very, very far out of course without you being yeah. aware something's amiss, you know? We're all, you know, a reflection of the experiences that we've had yeah. and and we're kind of set up to project those onto the people that we love. And my sense is that parents are quite adept at projecting their neuroses onto their kids and perpetuating whatever cycle of dysfunction, you know, (laughs) created their own (laughs) personal trauma (laughs) and then recreating it in those relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, How can we help parents develop a little more um, self-awareness around that? To prevent those. Mm, that's a great question. I mean, what happening. you're talking about is probably largely an unconscious process, yeah. right? So something that's hard to be self-aware of. And I've seen it lots in my time where a parent will come in first to see me, which I don't often do. And maybe it's because the kid doesn't really want therapy. And they'll describe this, this kid who just sounds like a total hellraiser. You know, like they just described this kid who like totally feels out of control and I have no idea what's going on. And then the kid comes in and like, it's like this really mild kid. She's like, I don't know what I did, you Uh know? And I do get the sense that there's some, there's some ancient history playing there. Like maybe the parent themselves was sort of a wild teenager or had a sibling who was secretly, you know, kind of up to no good. Um, So I, I guess I would say there's a lot, I think it's good to be thoughtful about one's own adolescence, right? And, and one's own, what did and didn't feel like it worked well, right? And and to try to be careful, you know, to not have one's own potholes dictate, you know, mm-hmm. how you're driving now. Um, I will also say this is where it's really nice if there's more than one grown up involved in raising a teenager, right? It, to have, you know, a couple people, you know, and they can be divorced or married, you know, two moms, two dads, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that a lot of good parenting happens when one parent says to the other, you know what, this is too hot to, t- like, this is too loaded for me. I need you to, you yeah, know, take the front line on this. Well, that that does d- require a decent amount of self awareness. Yeah. yeah, 
to and, know like this is an area where I'm going to do the wrong thing. Yeah, like I just <laughs> yeah, I have too much yeah. too much baggage uh-huh. in this ter- territory. I, I think that's a real gift. Um, yeah. And then the other thing, and I talk about this actually back in Untangled, like it's okay for you to be neurotic. You got to own it, right? So I I think it's okay for parents to say, you know what, look. If it's going to be about drugs and alcohol, like, you know my history, I don't handle that well. Like, that goes to your mom, right? Or, you know, like, me and money, like, I'm still working out my own neurotic stuff. Like, Uh I know that I do not always respond to you in ways that are rational about that. So for the parent to say, I call it crazy spots in Mm. Untangled, like, to to own, you know, like, yeah, I've got my own neurotic landscape and I know it well and I'm also, you know, late 40s and probably not changing, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to make this about you. I know it's mine. Yeah. One one thing that's been helpful to me is to understand that how I react or respond in a given situation is essentially how I'm modeling behavior for that child, mm-hmm. right? So if I get angry, I'm modeling anger mm-hmm. as a response to a given set of parameters mm-hmm. rather than problem solving mm-hmm. or you know, how to, you know, reduce anxiety around something that's anxiety producing or whatever. Um, and just having that minute, that little moment of like, okay, what am I, what, what, what's the best, what's the best sort of behavior that I can model for my child in this kind of scenario? Well, I think that really says it, right? It's, it's what you do, right? You can say all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't line up with how you're actually functioning in your relationships and how you're actually conducting yourself in life. First of all, kids will just call you a big fat hypocrite, you know, which yeah. they'll do that anyway. But but also it's really, it comes down to what you choose in your behavior yeah. is what, what kids will most pay attention to. I got to let you go. You got to go be on the Hallmark Channel. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> thank exciting. you. This has been wonderful. Um, thank you so much. You're doing amazing work. It's been very helpful to me and my family and it's really powerful um, and I think there's so much confusion specifically around how to best raise adolescent girls and, uh, the way in which you're demystifying it and providing really helpful, practical, tactical solutions for addressing the common scenarios that we all face, um, is really great. So thank you. I appreciate that. You are thank a you. champion of girls. <laughs> you are the girl whisperer, the girl guru. Well, I just hope to be their advocate. Yeah. And yeah. Th- that's the thing, yeah. you know, at, at its core that I want to leave people with is this, you, you're not, you're not like, you're a clinician, but you're not looking at this clinically. Like you really are a champion of these girls. And, and, you know, I would just end it by saying my 15 year old daughter, she's, you know, hella challenging at times. She's full of energy, but she is amazing. She is like a dynamo um, and has so many incredible qualities. And I feel like I'm just here to like nudge and try to just channel it in the right way. But I don't want to put that fire out. I want that fire to burn bright. And the sense that I get from you and your work is that like you love these girls and you want people to see how amazing they are. And rather than perceive this period of time as monstrous or difficult mm-hmm. or challenging to take all the pejorative language, you know, strip, strip away the pejorative language and just let's like, how can we champion what's amazing about this and, and really direct, you know, these amazing girls, soon to be women into the best direction so that they can be the leaders that we all want and need them to be. Amen. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. Um, The book is Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. And the book before that was Untangled. Mm -hmm. 
guiding teenage girls through the seven transitions into adulthood. Awesome. Uh, Thanks so much. Come back and talk to me again sometime. I'd love to. Are you working on another book? Mm, probably somewhere, probably somewhere <laughs> yeah. deep in the recesses of you're my now, mind. You're, you have to recover now yeah. before no, I, taking I, on the stress thinking. and anxiety. I'm still of thinking. Book. Yeah, good. All right. And Thank the best you. way for people to reach you, your website. They can find or, everything is mm-hmm. drlisademore.com, It's all there. Cool. Check it out. Thank you so much. Peace. Thanks. She's amazing, right? I got so much out of that. I hope you guys did too. I look forward to future conversations with Lisa. And please let her know what you thought of this conversation by hitting her up directly on Twitter at LDamore, D-A-M-O-U-R, and Lisa.Damore on Instagram. Uh, You can also check out the show notes to expand your experience of this conversation beyond the earbuds at richroll.com. Click on podcast page, find the latest podcast episode, and it's all right there. If you are struggling with your diet, if you are truly, honestly, finally committed to mastering your plate once and for all, but feel like, I don't really know what to do. I don't really like cookbooks. I'm not that skilled in the kitchen. I don't have that much time. I don't know how to budget for this. I cannot tell you how much I recommend our Plant Power Meal Planner. I really do think that this is the solution you've been waiting for. It's an amazing product we work very hard to create, and it solves this very basic essential problem that I think so many of us face, how to make nutritious eating convenient and delicious and affordable. To learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com, and there you will find access to thousands of delicious and easy-to-prepare plant-based recipes that we totally customize based on your personal needs. We have unlimited grocery lists. We have grocery delivery in most metropolitan areas, and we have an incredible team of nutrition experts at the ready for customer service to answer all of your questions, no matter how basic or silly. And you get all of this for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year incredibly affordable. It's a game changer, you guys. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can literally change your relationship with food. So to learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu on my website. If you would like to support the work we do here on the podcast, there are a couple simple, easy ways to do it. Just tell your friends about it at your next dinner party, at your family meal, when you're at Starbucks, whatever. Uh, Take a screen grab of the episode you're listening to and share it on your favorite social media platform. Hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Overcast, on Player FM, where else? Wherever you listen to this podcast, essentially, there are on so many platforms these days. Uh, Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, letting us know what you thought of the show. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on this show today. I definitely do not do this alone. This is a team effort, and I have an amazing team. Jason Camiolo for your amazing audio engineering production show notes, interstitial music, jack of all trades behind the scenes. Margot Lubin and Blake Curtis for filming the podcast and editing it for YouTube and all the clips that we share on social media. Jessica Miranda, she's the wizard behind all the beautiful graphics that we share with respect to each episode. DK for advertiser relationships. Thank you, DK. And theme music, as always, by Analemma. Oh, and we got Allie Rogers who's filming us behind the scenes today. We're going to start doing some more vlogs, which I'm pretty excited about. In any event, thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here shortly, very soon, with the return of the mighty Colin O'Brady. Until then, 
Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.